And now, ladies and gentlemen, Kawhi. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to YBR Presents Kawaii, a look at Japanese horror cinema throughout history. I am your uh, co-host, Zach, uh, and uh, we are we are diving back here into the world of Japanese horror, and this time we are going to be looking at something that I personally found very interesting in the realm of, is this a horror film, is this not? More importantly, what exactly is Japanese New Wave? Well, I can't answer any of that alone at all whatsoever, so I need my ever-vigilant co-host in here uh, to help me suss through a part of cinematic history that I'm still trying to learn about and still trying to get my get my mind around. So, I'm, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not even going to bury the lead. Please welcome back Rashmi Manan. Delighted to be back with you, Zach. This is a fun film to talk about. So I think You're not kidding. Today. You're not <laughs> kidding at all. I I was very taken aback by what this movie dared to do in terms of mm-hmm. pushing my brain to its limit. And it reminded me of this is like I I there's not everything that I can remember from my drinking days or pre-PTSD, but there is a couple of memories that always stand out. And one of them is being drunk on a couch in LA with a friend of mine watching uh, the skin I live in. And I have not felt yes. that feeling uh-huh. for a while until watching the face of another. It's a good connection. That's yeah. A really good connection. Thankfully, yeah. because my brain has grown up over the years, I didn't have the same reaction to a face of another that I did at the big reveal in the skin I live in. Uh, <laughs> Where... my, it's my favorite Almodovar. So it's, you know. it's a very good Almodovar. <laughs> I really, yeah. really enjoy that film and I like watching Antonio Banderas play sort yes. of a mad scientist. Yes. Uh, I mean he anyway, has, we're not yeah. talking we're not talking about that today, unfortunately. Maybe another time. No, no, but, not at all. But, but, but it's a very good connection, not one that I had I had made myself, but you're absolutely right. There are definitely some some similar themes here. Yeah, and also visual aesthetics, but we'll get into it. But mm-hmm. I want you to set the table for us because this is a mm-hmm. A bigger chat than usual because there is not only the horror genre at play, there is a new wave of Japan cinema. I want you to lay out for us a little bit um, in your in your good time about where we're at culturally at this point. I want you I want to bring us back to your culture corner from our last episode (laughs) and to give us a sense of what the hell's going on at this time. Sounds great, Zach. (laughs) So I will dig into new wave in a moment. But before we get to that, I want to just call out a couple of things, a kind of Japanese culture corner, right? A couple of things I noticed in the movie that I just wanted to kind of translate with for folks who may not be as familiar with Japanese history or culture. So let me start with that, and then I'll move on to talk to you a little bit about the new wave. So Brilliant. first of all, um, 
as we know, there's a B story in this movie about a brother and sister who are victims of the Nagasaki atomic bomb. Um, and uh, we will obviously get into talking about them in more detail in a bit. But I do want to just talk a little bit about kind of what the impact was for folks who suffered through these bombings. Um, so I'm going to take a little bit of time just to talk a little bit about what happened to them during that attack and then how they were treated afterwards, because mm. I think it kind of explains a little bit of kind of what's being shown in this film about them. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about kind of Japanese war crimes during World War II. And today we're going to be talking about American war crimes. And you might say to yourself, American war crimes? I didn't hear about those. Well, that's because we won the war, right? So there, there aren't any trials. But I have seen <laughs> interviews with people who are in the bombers who are doing some of these things. And they said, yeah, if we lost the war, we would have been convicted of war crimes because that's what we did, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think uh, there's a, a gentleman who's kind of at the source of all of this, who I think has recently become famous again, maybe because of Oppenheimer. I believe he's an Oppenheimer. I haven't seen the movie yet, but is Curtis LeMay in there? I believe he is, right? Uh, not remembering at the moment. Okay, all right. So Curtis LeMay was the guy who was in charge of the Air Force. The Air Force was... Um, I believe it was still a part of the army during World War II. I think it got split off afterwards. But in any case, he was the guy in charge of all this. And his nickname, if you had any doubt about what he was like, was Bombs Away. So Curtis yeah. Bombs Away LeMay. Of course, bombing is a more new, it's a newer technology in World War II, right? There was some bombing in World War I, but nothing was, you know, there wasn't any of the capability that happened in World War II. And why this becomes problematic is because bombing allows for a level of devastation that was never possible in a war front and it moves the war front away from the war front right mm, yeah. um and so the reason uh, and specifically now i'm referring to some of the fire bombing that happened at the end of world war ii in both dresden and in tokyo in fact the the fire bombings in tokyo killed more people than the atomic bombs did mm -hmm. um and then of course the atomic bombs and and why these bombings are so reprehensible is because they're very much uh against civilian targets right so not to say that you know what happens in war is acceptable in any case but there are kind of some rules of engagement typically if you're going to bomb something it's going to be like an oil field or a strategic bridge or a munitions factory or something that's really directly connected to waging war mm -hmm. uh, but what changed towards you know it would change really in world war ii is that now civilians were fair game and as long as your planes could get there you could just bomb the hell out of civilians killing innocent people, destroying their lives, ruining cities, burning them down to the ground, just right. really horrific stuff. Um, and so that is what was happening here. So, you know, two, obviously two atomic bombs were dropped, Hiroshima first, then Nagasaki a few days later. Um, and in the book, these victims are Hiroshima victims. In the movie, they're called Nagasaki victims. But in any case, um, you know, I, I'm going to just talk briefly about what happens when an autumn bomb explodes. If that's upsetting content for you, please just fast forward a couple minutes here. Yeah. Um, but basically what's going to happen is you have huge explosive force, right? And that is big enough to kind of blow limbs off of people. Um, you know, people's skin was sloughing off. They're terrible things that are happening to people on site. And th these were people who lived, right? Some, some of them who lived after all these things happened to them. Right. There's tremendous heat generated, which generates fires. So in addition to kind of the bombing, the explosiveness of the bomb, you've now got firestorms going on that are extremely hot. Uh, and then, of course, if you survive all of that, you've got to then contend with the radiation 
uh, which sometimes has near-term effects causing burns on the body. And, and some people passed away quite quickly from radiation sickness if they had a high level exposure. And then many people found out years later when they developed some sort of cancer or perhaps they passed on uh, something to their children through their genes, which have also been um, uh, manipulated by the radiation. Mm -hmm. So, um, So terrible, terrible things happening right away. But then we can talk about these people are unfortunately re-victimized after uh, the the immediate impacts of the bombs. Mm -hmm. um, and I can point to a couple of ways. I'm sure there's several. I'll point to a couple. One is that um, particularly American medical staff, but kind of medical staff in general, turn these people into test subjects and very much in a dehumanized, um, just cruel way, right? In mm. that... They weren't being treated as, okay, these are patients who are suffering and I need to help them. That was happening as well. I'm not saying that that wasn't happening. That was happening as well. But since this was really the first place that widespread impact of all of these things was happening, you know, scientists rushed in and just treated people like test subjects. You know, they were paraded around on stage, sometimes naked to be seen by the other doctors. It was done in a very insensitive, terrible way. Um, so that's, that's kind of awful. Yeah, uh, And then the second thing is the discrimination they faced. So there was a lot of lack of understanding of what the radiation uh, impact means. A lot of people felt that if somebody exhibited signs of radiation sickness, that meant they were like contagious, right? That that could spread radiation to you. And therefore, these people need to be segregated. And that's exactly the type of thing that happened. So people who had been known to have been victims of the bombs, particularly if they had some physical manifestation of it such as a scar mm -hmm. right that was easily yeah. visible to people right they uh could not uh, oftentimes were not hired for work right because other people like if you're hired in an office other people in the office are like oh i'm gonna get radiation from you and they don't want to work for them right work with them and they often had time trouble uh finding people that would want to marry them because it was thought once again that this would be contagious mm. um and so that's why so obviously these folks were uh economically challenged because they couldn't work normal jobs and they were really socially isolated um, and so that's exactly what we see in these two characters in the B role B story in our in our film, right? That they are, you know, they're doing work at home. It looks like they have a little factory they've set up in their own home that they can work together there because I'm sure no one else wanted to employ them. And then socially, as we'll talk about in more detail when we do our walkthroughs, socially they're very isolated, and the two of them really only have each other. Um, so I just wanted to kind of clarify what that experience was like to give a little bit of context to those two characters in the film. And like I said, right. we'll, we'll talk more about them in a minute. A um, couple of the things I wanted to bring up, there's a big scene where they're going to hire the person that they're going to use as the facial model. And they make a big uh, thing of kind of sliding over a 10,000 no yen note to him. Um, and I just wanted to give a quick Quick thing on Japanese money, um, U.S. money, we tend to operate in thousands, right? So you have three zeros, a comma, then thousands, ten thousands, hundred thousands, and then after those three zeros, another comma, and we get to million and so on. So every three zeros, we add a comma, right? right. That's kind of how our money system works. In Japan, it's actually four zeros that they do. So they have, you know, 10, uh, one, 10, 100, 1,000, and then 10,000. Uh, that's called ichimaen. So 10,000 is their unit. And then it's another 10,000 before they get to the next unit, right? So they'll have um, 10, 10, 10 thousands, 100, 10 thousands, 1,000, 10, 10 thousands. And then when you get to 10,000, 10 thousands, you have the next unit of money, which is called an oku. 
So mm -hmm. anyway, that's just a little difference. And then if, if anyone was wondering, uh, 10,000 uh, 10, yen note, if we took it to money today, would be worth about $285. So in case you're wondering uh, what yeah, that payment is. Yeah, I was actually curious about that because like, yeah. it, especially like given the way that character reacts to that payment um, and, yeah. and also his hesitancy, it, it brings, yeah. it brings added clarity to it. Like it's, yes, you it's know, enough. It's enough that if you're kind of not employed or something like that, it does, you know, it's enough uh, maybe mm -hmm. to do something, but it's not like it's going to set you up for life or anything. Yeah. Know? That's, that's <laughs> what I wanted to yeah. clarify. And that, that yeah. helps me understand that scene a little, a tiny exactly. bit better. I mean, it's not the impetus of the crux of the scene, but yeah, no, that's I get you. Just, just little notes. I have a couple other little notes like that here. Nice. Um, beer gardens. Uh, so be these kind of places, I have been to a few of them in Japan and they're not uncommon. So some of them are the kind of indoor ones like they have here. Mm -hmm. And then in the summer, a lot of places open up these beer gardens, which are really nice, which is kind of, you know, they'll open up kind of like a patio or an outdoor seating area and they kind of outfit it to look like maybe, I don't know, a beer garden in Munich. Yeah, it, like I, that. I was going to yeah. ask, is that yeah. like or do the majority of them tend to be german centric or is it yes. like any german okay. themed gotcha yes but just to clarify beer is an imp uh, incredibly popular beverage in japan as well they have uh, several local breweries like uh, sapporo uh and um Kirin and you know there are many brands some of which are available to purchase internationally um so they're they're really good high quality beers i quite like them and they they're very common uh in fact uh, you know, at some point in history, a Japanese decided that beer was something they wanted to make. <laughs> and, you know, as I mentioned, Japan was pretty sealed off from the outside. And so they kind of looked on a map and they were like, OK, where are the good places that make beer? OK, there's Munich and then there's like, you know, Wisconsin or St. Louis or something, you know, looking at all these other places. And then they just kind of went over that same latitude to Japan and just decided, OK, we're going to do this <laughs> in like Sapporo, Hokkaido area, which is that northern island in the chain of islands of Japan is where they make the beer which is also where most of the wheat is grown. So it kind of makes sense. A lot of the grains right, are grown. Yeah. But yes, they are. They do tend to be German themed and they will serve things like pretzel and sausages and, and things Shoot. like that. So, would, yeah. have been, would, have been a, would have been a nice place to go in my 20s. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. No, it's great. They they are a lot of fun, especially those summer ones that I was talking about. Um, and, and people may even be costumed and stuff like that. So yeah, they really get into it. <laughs> um, <laughs> a couple of the things, the uh, kind of place that the B-roll couple goes to, that little vacation they go to on the beach, that is a very common type of uh, Japanese vacation. Uh, folks will often go to places with hot springs. So there are these hot springs resorts. So you can go and stay in a nice little country inn. Um, and then they'll have really good food. They're really known for their food. Mm. Um, and then they have usually a hot spring bath that's kind of attached to the lodging. So you can get into what's called a yukata. Yukata is kind of a house kimono. It's more like a robe than something you'd go outside in. Mm. Um, and then you just put that on. You go do your hot spring bath. You come back and then you have a nice meal with beer and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a, a, a nice vacation that you can have in Japan. And if anybody's visiting Japan, highly recommend giving that a try. Mm. Um, one small other note before I get into a more philosophical theme here, but the small note is you may have noticed at the end when the doctor goes to bail out uh, Ukayama, he uh, or Okuyama, he um, uses a little stamp. The, the he, police give him a paper and you'll see him stamp something. And if you're wondering what that is, um, in Japan, in, traditionally, instead of signing your signature with like a pen and paper, you have what's called a hanko. And a hanko is basically a stamp which has the 
kanji characters for your name mm -hmm. and that is what you use like on banking documents and government documents and stuff you bring that with you and so in every family they'll kind of have their seal that's used for all their documents and then when like inheritance happens like essentially that seal gets passed on to the next person and i whatnot. think we but talked anyway. about that at uh in high and low i believe we had that discussion oh, at possible. some point yeah it's um, possible yeah so that's what he was doing if you're wondering why is he stamping a piece of paper that's what he's doing yeah he's signing it um, okay, I want to do one last culture Japanese culture point, and then we'll move on to the new wave. And this is about, um, you know, this movie obviously has a lot of themes about your identity and your personality. And that's what's, you know, masking and all that stuff. And I'm going to talk about the kind of existentialist aspect of that in a minute when we talk about the new wave. Um, there's definitely a strong tie to Jungian philosophy as well. Mm. Um, Jung is actually referred to directly in Kobo Abe's book, although on a different topic, not this topic, but it's certainly Jungian thought runs through all of these themes. And in, in Jung, there's a concept of the persona, which is essentially the mask you wear to kind of fit into society. I think that that scene at the end where everybody's coming out of like the subway and they have all their, um, everybody has a mask on. That's very emblematic of that kind of Jungian concept of persona. Mm -hmm. And then there's a process of individuation that you go through to get to the self, which is, you know, your true self, your authentic self, or you're not wearing that mask. And it's described that that process is painful and fraught, <laughs> which yeah. is kind of what, you know, we, we see in the in the film. But one other thing, since uh, this is a Japanese movie and the majority of Japanese people identify as Shinto and Buddhist, um, in Buddhism, the thoughts on identity are, are somewhat similar uh, to this film in that there is a feeling that we want to feel like we have a fixed identity, right? Like I am mm -hmm. this person, this is what I stand for, this is what I'm known for, this is who I am. But the fact is that, and, and we try to cling to that and it makes us sad because it doesn't work, right? We suffer because the fact is we don't have a fixed identity, right? Mm -hmm. You are a different person at different times in your life. You're a different person as a result of different experiences you go through. And you're a different person in different environments that you're in. I think very few people probably act with their parents the same way they would with their college friends, the same way they would with their boss at work or something, right? We're always projecting a different version of ourselves based on what interaction we're in. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of what Buddhism is saying is that we're not always the same person. And that when, you know, if you identify as like, oh, I'm the rich, successful person, and then you lose your job, all of a sudden you're suffering because you feel like you're no longer the rich, successful person. But the fact is you're the same. It's just, you have these different presentations that happen in your life. Right. On what's yeah. Right? So, mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was kind of just an interesting philosophy to have in mind as we get into discussing this film. Okay. Let me dig into the new age a little bit because this this movie is really into this is like an emblematic of the new wave so yeah I think it's a, you know we've talked about a lot of different movements in film and i think this is gonna be a fun one to talk about so um there were several new wave uh, movements worldwide but i think the french one is probably the most well known and probably the one that's seen as a little bit of the originator of this this certainly this term this term new wave kind of came out of uh, it's called nouvelle vague in France and in Japan, it was kind of translated over. Uh, unfortunately, Japanese doesn't have really uh, letters for V or for L. <laughs> so, so they have to replace B as a replacement for V and R as a replacement for L. And that's why they call it like Nuberu <laughs> Bagu. So, so anyway, um, so in France, you know, what do, what are some of the characteristics of a new wave moment, movement? 
Um, I definitely see it as something that is comes from a little bit more of an intellectual. The, the, the filmmakers tend to be more intellectual and more left wing. They tend to be anti-authority. They're more experimental. It's very much a reaction to the studio system, right? Mm -hmm. These are independent filmmakers. So in France, um, these filmmakers, a lot of them came out of this uh, uh, critical uh, publication called Cahier du Cinema that used yeah. to come out, right? They're, they're the ones we have to thank for the term film noir, which is so vaguely defined that you can have hours of debate about whether something is a noir movie, but they did come up with that term. And they also were very responsible for assessing our catalog in a way yes. that we weren't assessing it. And Correct, from, and they were and from their huge fans of Hitchcock. Exactly. You know, all those yeah, like mm -hmm. that. that's yeah. something to keep in mind for people. Like with it, when we've talked about Hitchcock before, he was not seen that way here in this country. It took the French New Wave crew from Cahiers du Cinema to push him into that stratosphere for by the time the 60s arrived. Because before that, he was seen as a popcorn guy. He was not seen exactly. as an artist at Exactly. All. And Hitchcock Truffaut, great book, great documentary. Mm -hmm. And Truffaut is one of the New Wave filmmakers. So there were, you know, pretty, not all of them came out of Cahiers du Cinema, but a lot of these New Wave filmmakers in France came out of this critical journal called so they are very intellectual. Um, they, you know, in terms of filming style, they're doing a lot more stuff outdoors. Um, it's a lot of guerrilla filmmaking, right? They're handheld. Mm -hmm. They're running all over the place. They're not getting permits. They're doing stuff out on the street. Um, they're breaking all of the laws when it comes to continuity and editing. Uh, in fact, the jump cut becomes becomes very famous as a result of the new wave. Uh, it, apparently, the jump cut was quote unquote invented. Now, I don't think Godard was the first person to do it, but he got famous for it. And apparently he did it because he was told when he made his first cut of Breathless that it was too long and he had to cut a bunch of stuff out. So he's like, fine, you know, like kind of like a petulant child. You know? Right. Like, you yeah. told me to cut. So I did. Yeah. You know? So there's just no continuity it, it, between things. He's just going to smash things together. It's amazing <laughs> how much art is created out of a hissy fit. <laughs> exactly. Um, another thing. And, and, and this happens in this film. It happens in other films. We're going to see the audio of one scene blending with the video of the next one right mm. um this was very common also in the kind of new american cinema right uh in fact i heard a podcast where they credited this technique to the editor of body and clyde she was also an editor for a lot of those kind of films but we're seeing it happening here before bonnie and clyde right yeah. so this was something that was happening internationally um, and then sometimes scenes with like no sound at all so really playing with the rules of cinema they were low budget they were definitely inspired by things like neorealism in Italy. Mm -hmm. um, lots of themes around satire, irony. As I mentioned, leftist politics is typically uh, often involved. You'll see it. I mean, Godard definitely. Um, we'll, I'll talk about a Japanese filmmaker who did that as well. But that that's definitely a part of it. Um, and then, um, you know, we noticed like kind of an early 1900s, there was a lot of, you know, Freudian philosophy in films, right? Obviously, Hitchcock, ton of it. Right. Um, but when we see New Wave, I also want to just layer on, we're getting a lot more existentialism as well. Right. right? And yeah. there's definitely existentialism in this film we're watching today, which kind of is, you know, existentialism kind of comes out. Obviously, there were parts of it that happened even at the end of the 1800s. So it's not, I don't want to say that it's new in this time, mm -hmm. but I think it became popular in this time, probably because of World War II, right? In a world where World War II can happen. Yeah. That kind of God is dead feeling is very much prevalent. Right? Like, I, why are we even here? I remember right? the first time that I fully realized 
where that origin point was was after reading something like Slaughterhouse Five, where there was yeah. like a definite they, they they are pinpointing a time where the world becomes virtually undone from a mental standpoint. Like all those yeah. structures seem to be unfurled, and That's I right. would I would argue that the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki has a Absolutely. big ton to do with it. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is a world where like, what's the point of even being here? Mm -hmm. Is there any meaning in what we're doing? There's a sense of loss. There's a sense of isolation. There's a sense of not fitting in. You know, there are a lot of these things that are coming out of existential that, that you know, I, I you know, Sartre, we read a lot of his books when I was in, you know, French class in mm -hmm. high school. And, uh, you know, it's it's just, you know, like how difficult it is to get along with other people. You know, hell, literally hell is other people. You mm -hmm. know? <laughs> um, and and so things like, you know, a, a, a three a, a, a hours long play about just three people shut up in a room and how they can't get along with each other. You know, this is what existentialism is. And I think we see a lot of that in this in this film and in this book as well. And for anyone interested in, in kind of checking out some French New Wave. Yeah. Start with Godard. He's probably the most fate, one of the most famous ones to come out of New Wave and, and bless his heart, still making films today. He's, he premiered a new film, I think, at the Venice Film Festival in this year, uh, 2023. So he's still active. Um, Godard is kind of, you know, very much this kind of very anti-establishment. Uh, I've seen several of his films where he chose just not to have subtitles. Like, it's going to be in French and you're just going to have to deal with that. Right? right? Like That's the kind of stuff he does. Uh, I, I kind of find it funny. Some people get angry about it. But in, in any case... Um, he so breathless is probably one of his most famous films and kind of a textbook new wave film if you're interested in checking one out um but in any case it, that's kind of new wave in france now let me just talk briefly about how it came to what what happened in japan so the biggest difference so obviously the japanese new wave was also inspired by the french new wave but i think the biggest difference between japan and france is that the new wave in japan started within the studio system Right. So whereas in France, it's very much an opposition to the studio system in Japan, it was started at least inside the studio system. Mm -hmm. um, and so and I know you're going to talk about ATG and some of those other kind of independence that happened in the 60s. But this really started at places like Shochiku that we've talked about um, and Toho and, you know, our friend uh, Seijin uh, Suzuki at Nikatsu. So the, the studios were doing new wave films uh, as kind of a way to just keep capturing that that cinema dollar. There's a very quick way to describe it is that they did what American studios did 10 years later, it's all out of desperation to keep their income afloat. Yes, they have exactly. no idea how to That's keep right. up. But in the case of America, it's new corporate owners coming in and saying, we don't know how to make a movie at all. The mm -hmm. the I, I got the sense, and I could be wrong, that Japanese cinema was in a realm of, we can't keep up with what people want. Can you? Can That's you part of it. it. They yeah. definitely ran out of money too, right? Oh, okay. So we definitely gotcha. in the '60s we definitely have studios failing as well. But yes, you're. It ran a little bit longer, and you know, like last time when we talked about with Goke, right? That like Shochiku was doing these low budget horror films, which in the U.S. probably would have been like a Corman film or something, right? Mm -hmm. In Japan, it was actually part of a studio. Right. Um, gotcha. So that is, you're right. That is, yeah. So that's a different. Now, I want to call out a couple of Japanese new wave filmmakers if folks are interested in exploring more. Uh, so obviously, Teshigahara, who we're covering today, is one of them. My favorite is a guy named uh, uh, Oshima, 
So Oshima is my favorite uh, new wave filmmaker. He's also, like I mentioned, he's he was an academic. So he's actually teaching in schools. He is a leftist. There's some of his films that are specifically about like the student riots in 1968 and other themes like that. He's also really concerned about social issues. He's very progressive for his day. Uh, so definitely, definitely an SJW. Uh, and uh, mm -hmm. and one of his issues that he cared deeply about was kind of the position of Korean people in Japanese society. Koreans have been in Japan for for decades, generations. Japan had a pretty harsh colonization of Korea. Mm -hmm. A lot of uh, kind of culture and food and all kinds of things have migrated to Japan through Korea. And yet there's very much a um, discrimination against Korean people in Japan. Mm. Um, and so uh, Oshima's uh, made a film called Boy. Uh, actually, Oshima made a film called Death by Hanging that deals with this theme. Death by Hanging, I was originally proposing for this uh, for this series, but didn't seem horror enough for me, but I highly recommend it. It's a black comedy. It's about a Korean man who's convicted of a crime, sentenced to die, and then when they go to execute him, he actually doesn't die. And then it's kind of like, oh no, what do we do? And there's a lot of kind of philosophical uh discussions and so on and so forth right um, so that that's a great film i would recommend and then oshima also did a film called boy which is very similar if anyone's seen koreda's shoplifters very similar film about people on the margins of society who kind of subsist and exist by doing things like shoplifting and they kind of make their own chosen families because they've been rejected by everybody else and mm -hmm. so it's a very touching film um and like i said it kind of just points to kind of oshima's interest in these kind of social issues uses a lot of he Oshima uses a lot of French techniques. He does a lot of that kind of disruption as well. There's a film he made where um about 20 minutes in, it kind of restarts. And the first time they were playing it in movies, people actually just went up to the projectionist and were like, hey, I think you know you put the wrong reel in. You the, you know, you're showing the first reel again. Uh, and it turns out actually that was intentional. Um, some others I would recommend. Um, Shinoda is another favorite of mine. And you could hear me talking about a Shinoda noir film called Play of Flower on the Asian Cinema Film Club. Uh, really great film. Um, Imamura, I think we talked about when we talked about Suzuki because Seijin Suzuki made B movies that mm -hmm. went with A films made by Imamura. So he has some new wave films. Yoshida, there are a few others, but in any case, plenty to choose from. I think it was a very fruitful and creative decade in Japan, even though the studio system was failing. I think we're seeing just a lot of cool experimentation going on. I agree. Uh, far more than had happened before or actually quite frankly afterwards, because really the 70s were a little bit of a doldrum period in Japanese cinema. There were definitely things going on, but the money was gone. And so that made it much, much harder to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have people even like Kurosawa, right, who are like really putting out the begging bowl, asking for help. Uh, to be able to make a film, which which um, we which we still mm. experience, we have that with our our new, our new our American new wave figures have that same struggle. Unless you're Spielberg, like nobody's getting those. It, they are finding it difficult to get those films arranged, and you have to hope that somebody wants an Oscar run at this point to get something made by those guys. Or if you're Francis Ford Coppola using your wine money to make megalopolis yeah exactly yeah. which hey good on you man good on you yeah anyway what i thought i'd do um new wave also impacts writing as well as film and i thought i'd talk a little bit about the kobo abe book before mm -hmm. we get into the production history yes uh, and in particular uh so so this this 
this film is based on a book of the same name by an author called Kobo Abe. And actually, Teshigahara and Kobo Abe worked together several times. Mm -hmm. uh, several Kobo Abe books have been turned into movies by him. They were um, they were so starting the revolution it, out there, man. They were. Yeah, they, 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 they were. They really were. They're, they're, they really they're, were. We'll get to it, but their collective were. Oh, God, it's, yeah. it's incredible. And actually, Oshima did some films for ATG. I know you're going to talk about ATG in a minute. But yeah, that, a lot of the New Wave folks kind of uh, were interested in what ATG was doing. In any case, okay, so... Kobabe's book. So I'll just call out some of the differences rather than summarizing the whole thing because we're going to talk about the movie anyway. Um, so one thing is kind of the tone. So the book is written from a first-person singular perspective, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, uh, in fact, it is actually diary entries. So he uh, uh, he composes a series of diaries and leaves them for his wife to read. And that's what we're reading is basically the diary entry. So everything's first-person. There is no other doctor figure that he's working with so everything that's happening he's doing it right he's mm. making the mask he's finding the person who's going to be the model for the mask he's doing everything himself now it makes a lot of sense to me that they bring the doctor character into the film because you need you don't just want everything to be voiceover right so it allows kind of a foil for them to talk with each other i i, I want i just want to say up front that i think the film adaptation of this book is excellent and just like i said with the invisible man this is a rare case where i actually prefer the film to the movie I, do, I think they've done a really good thing good job with the film um there's more body horror in the book so you're getting like really gross descriptions of what's going on with his face um there's a lot more philosophy so this book reminded me a lot of like you know if you read something like Camus the stranger or something right like <laughs> oh, oh god like Okay. A lot of music, a lot of philosophy, uh, not a whole lot of plot, you know. <laughs> I like the stranger, but you just yeah, telling you, you telling me that tells me that at my current age, in my current ability to keep focus, that this book would not be for me at the moment. <laughs> I could not agree with you more, Zach. I literally felt like I was back in high school. Uh, I feel like college. an illiterate was, jerk. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, have to, you have to be in that kind of teenage angsty time to get the most out of these books. Oh yep. yeah. Well, instead yeah. I instead I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas three times. So ah, there we go. Nice. <laughs> um, nice. But yeah, no. Um, um I, you know what? I wanted to. I have a little question about the book in terms of Abe and what this is. Like, obviously, you're telling me there's more graphic nature yeah. to it, and yeah. uh, like, but is and there's more philosophy in it. But like, would you say that in terms of an adaptation, does it? Does it stay true to the book in comparison, or is it more that you feel the plot is reworked better under the film's I feel auspices? The plot is reworked a lot better. Mm, yeah, the plot okay. has worked a lot better. I think the dialogue and the interaction between the doctor and him add a nice kind of tension. I, quite frankly, in the book, that tension is kind of within himself, right? So he uses phrases in the book like, I let the mask make plans. You know, it's almost like mm. he has this kind of split identity. There's him and then there's him with the mask or whatever. But I think, it, yeah, just everything about it, I think, is better in the film. The plot is better. The dialogue is better. Uh, the characters kind of are more fully fledged. The one piece, and I'll get to it in a moment, the one piece I think is that B story is handled better in the book, and I'll talk about that in a moment here. Right. Um, you know, we learn a little bit more about him that's not in the film. Like in the book, he says that he had had a child who died, and then there was another miscarriage. And, you know, so I think it kind of points to maybe stressors that were in their marriage to begin with, right, even before this tragedy happens. Right. It's also a lot of tragedy for a person to go through. That's pretty tough. Mm -hmm. Um. Then um, the child with the yo-yo is more clearly a child in the book. In the film, there's some dodginess there that I think we'll get to when we talk about yeah. it. That isn't in the in the 
in the book. In the book, I think it said that she had like a bout of meningitis or something, which is what uh, caused her to have some damage to her brain, and that's the why she's act- that's why she acts the way she does. Gotcha. Um, so in the in the book, he actually buys a toy gun, which looks very similar to real gun, and I think it's mentioned that he can even use real ammo or something like that. But anyway, he buys a toy gun when he goes to the toy store to buy the yo-yo. Uh-huh. Um, and he muses on crimes he could commit. I saw so much similarity to the Invisible Man here. So there's a lot of that, right? Like, right. oh, I could do this and I could do that. And kind of a lot of that. Um, he, um, you know, I'll kind of, I'm going to skip some of the details here to talk a little bit more about uh, kind of, first of all, the B story. So the B story in the book is actually a film that he goes to see. So he goes to see a film right before he uh, kind of bucks up the courage to go get the model for his face. So obviously because he's been wearing all these bandages, he's been pretty much sequestered. He doesn't really go out in public much. So he feels kind of apprehensive about just even going out and doing this. You know, it's a little bit like people emerging from COVID lockdown or whatever, right? Though he's just not really used to interacting with people anymore. So kind of to get ready to go do that, he goes and sees a film first. He doesn't talk about what that film is initially. He brings it up at the end after after the reveal with his wife and the way he talks about it is I went to see this film there was a woman and her brother she has the scar she's propositioned by these men she comes home and works with their brother they go on this trip to the the huts oh he she she goes to volunteer at this uh uh, uh, kind of veterans home or, you know, mm-hmm. a, a more like a mental hospital, which actually really reminded me of Page of Madness. But once again, we'll get to that. Yeah. In but in any case, all of that happens. All the beats are there, but it's kind of condensed in this one chapter. And then the point that he draws from this whole thing is her brother loved her so much that he could accept this deformity and loved her for it and was attracted to her. Uh, whereas you, my wife, have rejected me after all this damage. And that he's kind of using it as a justification for mm-hmm. what he's about to unleash on society. And at the end, what he does is um, it, it, the reveal doesn't come right away. I do think this is actually handled better in the film where it happens right away. In the book, the, you know, she, they meet up like he goes home in his bandages over 10 times and then he'll call from the apartment as the mask guy. And there's a lot of kind of. I don't know, cat and mouse or whatever. It's kind of drawn out. Mm -hmm. And then eventually he writes up these diaries and leaves them for her to read as a way of revealing, oh, hey, I was the mask guy all along, right? Mm -hmm. And then she essentially writes him back a letter, which he puts in this diary and essentially just says, yeah, I always knew that, just like we see in the film. Uh, And that basically, you know, the fact that you didn't trust me uh, doesn't work for me and I'm leaving. So she's basically left. And then... Um, then he, at the end, he basically puts the mask back on, takes the toy gun and goes out kind of first hunting for his wife, can't find her in any of the usual places. And so he's about to victimize this other woman Mm -hmm. and kind of looking forward to a life of lechery and crime. And that's kind of where it ends. It ends on a bad note, right? Like he's about to become a terrible person. I, Um, I get the feeling that Abe in his attempt with the book, he is he is drawing on just from hearing this. And again, I should maybe read the book, but it sounds like he is far more pessimistic than Tashikahara. Yeah. I, 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 and I feel at times, and this isn't to like pigeonhole, but I do feel at times that authors of books tend to have far more, reservations against empathy or uh compassion 
And in a lot of ways, that's why we love these books because they're in their in their rawest forms. They are an expression of something that we intrinsically feel. And I think mm-hmm. that film has a better empathy lens than a book does and in certain points because it's hard to look at a photograph of somebody. And, and it's also, I think that's where that perspective matters, right? Mm-hmm. Are we in his head or are we seeing him from the outside? Exactly. Right? Yeah. And I'm sure all of us in our own heads have thought things that are so terrible we never say them to anybody, right? Uh, like, whatever, you might be really angry at somebody or whatever, mm-hmm. and you're thinking things in your head. I mean, that's yeah. not anything you're ever going to act on. It's not ever anything you're going to tell anybody except maybe a therapist or something. But, you know, you're not sharing a lot of what's going on in your mind. And when you read a book, you're hearing everything that is in his mind. And of course, a lot of it's terrible. Right. So, yeah. yeah. No, agreed. Yeah. No, absolutely yeah. agreed. And I think no. that I, I feel like the, the, the wonderful part of knowing what Abe had in mind from a novel standpoint versus what Tashigahara brings to a cinematic lens is that the ideas are not far removed from each other. Mm-mm. It's no, a, it's no. a matter Very of faithful. Yeah. It's it, yeah. To me, it seems exactly like a film you would get if you had a close collaboration with the author, right? Which mm. is basically the heart and soul of the book is there. So much of the beats and the plot and everything are there. But somebody who knows something about film has transformed it so it works a lot better as a film. It's yeah. ideal. I think it's an ideal collaboration. Agree, really. agree. Because there's not the, like, and this is a this is a disclaimer that I can probably apply to any other film we talk about on this feed or any other feed. There is no way ever to film the book, even when we've talked about the Maltese Falcon on Ballyhoo's regular feed. Yeah. Yes, he is filming the book. Does that mean it's every single thing? No, partially because of the code. But another part of it is there are just certain things, passages, uh, mm-hmm. a- a- elements of perspective that you will not be able to achieve on film because mm-hmm. it doesn't logistically make sense unless you yes. are truly going avant-garde and truly yes. trying to futz with reality. And I yeah. feel like, I feel like what... Based on what you're describing, Tishigahara took a very existentialist thriller and turned it into a digestible horror thriller. Uh, and that that's where, when I said at the beginning about the line of, is this horror? Mm. I believe it is. But yes. I think that comes with the qualifier that yeah. there is a... As we're talking about horror cinema, there has to be brought up the stereotyping that comes with this genre, which is there's an idea out there that there's such a thing as elevated horror. And I don't agree with that theory. And I could be the only one in this room that doesn't agree with no, that no, no. theory. No, no, no. I don't like it either. Yeah. No, and there's like a very it, yeah. simple reason is because one, it's denigrating to an artist who's creating something unique to their vision. But mm-hmm. the other part of it is is that we don't want to, as a culture, admit, and and I, I really blame film snobs for this. I, I do think that this is their, they, something they have created, and it's been perpetual over time. They don't want to admit that there's art in something that truly gets down to the things that terrify us. I think it's why when something like Silence of the Lambs was nominated and then wins Best Picture, 
they have a justification in their head of like, well, this is a crime thriller. That's why it's winning Best Picture. And it's like, no, it's a horror movie. It deals with a guy yeah. who's trying to skin women alive. Um, yes. th there is a definite or not alive. But anyway, watch Silence of the Lambs. It's great. Yeah. But um, or The Exorcist. They're like, well, it's a mm -hmm. it's a religious thriller. And it's like, no, it's a fucking no. horror movie. No, no horror. I, I mean, you and I both love horror. Yeah. See a lot. You know, yes, there is campy, silly horror. Mm -hmm. There is deliberately glory horror. There is, mm -hmm. you know, horror that's meant to torture, you know, torture porn, that kind of stuff. That's all horror. But there's also horror that really makes you think. Mm -hmm. um, but that, it's but uh, it's all it's all in the same. It's all it in is. the same. And they can feeling. be in the same film. And there's and, and there's inherent ability to comment on things that are difficult under dramatic auspices or difficult under comedy auspices, especially. And I don't feel like. I, I feel like that that denigration is is at times used as an excuse to talk about mm -hmm. something you really want to talk about, but not seem like you're down a gene pool when it comes to your cinematic <laughs> taste. And it's and it's 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 ridiculous and disgusting, quite frankly, because yeah. I, I I don't know why. And, and there's a flip side to this where people who are horror fans have a hard time sussing out a horror movie from the art form. And like Ari Aster gets thrown at this going like, well, he's not really making horror movies. They aren't blood and guts right. and, 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 and extreme forms of violence. And it's like, no, but he's Did making a see horror. the end of Midsummer. Yeah, I mean, well, that's a man in a bear costume. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But like, and I, I feel like that's, that's where I have trouble with, all forms of fandom commenting on this genre because it's like nobody wants to just admit that it's all the same thing or it's all encompassed in one thing and and it's and it happens with other genres too like there's drama and then there's melodrama but right. that doesn't mean yeah. it's not drama it's just no. that one is tugging at a known heartstring and the other mm -hmm. one is touching on a difficult a that's subject. a great analogy yeah yeah for me this is very much it's a very much intellectual philosophy philosophical film it is also a horror film. I think that, you know, if some of the, uh, maybe if it weren't made, maybe if it were made today as opposed to when it was made, there may be more body horror in it because it certainly was in the book. But mm. there's so much horror around like identity and loss of identity and who am I really and what's my personality and I mean, that's at the core of, you know, if you're talking to me, like, what's the thing I'm most afraid of, right? Like, losing track of who I am is extremely scary. Which, which, I mean, again, the skin I live in hits on that, but also Cronenberg yeah. does that. It's just Cronenberg yeah, exactly. likes dealing with special effects, too. It's, exactly. it's a big thing. I put down Cronenberg. I was like, when I thought about, like, themes and connections for this film, right? There's so many, right? Yeah, Cronenberg, absolutely. Skin I live in, great one. Mm -hmm. um, there's... Uh, all manner of films about doppelgangers, right? And identities and mass masks are so common in horror, yeah. right? There, there's always this sense of I become a different potentially a more violent person when mm -hmm. I put this mask on. Yeah. Um, so many common themes, themes that we see today in the horror of today. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think that's a good way to kind of like talk about like as we're talking about a filmmaker can make a horror film regardless of what, uh, regardless of how people are going to view it. They are making a horror movie. And I don't think that Tishigahara is unaware of how to no. deal with that horror. So um, let's talk a little bit about Tishigahara and where he comes from and how he gets to this point. Um, mm. He is born in Chiyoda, Tokyo, Japan on January 28th, 1927. Uh, he is the son of uh, Sofu Tishigahara, 
he's the founder of something called the Sogetsu Ryu School, which practiced the art of Ikebana. Now, Rashi- can I take a quick culture quarter for that? Sure, please do, because <laughs> okay. I want to know what the hell this is and I didn't okay. why I didn't know there was a school for it. <laughs> okay, so Ikebana is the art of flower arranging. And in Japan, this is not like, oh, you go to your florist down the street and they make a nice bouquet for you, right? No. That is not what is meant by this floral arranging. Nope. This is an art very similar to tea ceremony. It's kind of at the heart of the soul of Japan. Takes a lot of stuff from kind of Zen Buddhist principles. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a minimalism to it. Um, where I, I actually took some classes in Ikebana when I was in Japan. <laughs> uh, one of the companies I was working at, like every Wednesday night or something, they would have, Ikebana lessons and so you could go um and for me my aesthetic when it comes to things like flowers just kind of the more the better right like this is all about the abundance of nature and all that but that's very different from Japanese flower arranging so first of all usually you're going to arrange the flowers in a very nice ceramic container which is art in itself right Mm -hmm. like a beautiful ceramic dish or bowl or vase uh is what you start with and then you have one of those um I don't even know what these things are called. It's like a metal thing with a bunch of spikes on it, which is what you then skewer all of these stems of these flowers and plants that you're using. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that thing is called, but that's a thing. So you put that at the base of your bowl or pot or whatever that you're using. Uh, and then you're kind of putting, you're arranging all of these elements together. They're very seasonal. Seasonality is once again, a very kind of common thing in Japan. It's very important in Japan, far more than I see in the West. Um, and so seasonality. So you're taking plants from the season and then you're trying to arrange them in a way where you're kind of giving them motion and life and kind of a energy to them Mm -hmm. um and so oftentimes you know like i said i'm all about abundance so i'll just put my flowers in and then they'll be like oh you have to cut this one off and you have to cut this one off and whatever to make whatever line you know it's all about form and line and it is very much an art Mm -hmm. uh it is an art just like you know painting is an art or ceramics or, or anything like that is an art when right? you it's when, very, when yeah. you when you look at it if you like google ikebana yeah. if you look at it you know you've seen this before that's the yes. thing and yes. what i get from it is you're trying to recreate a reality that doesn't actually exist because that's an interesting way of putting it yeah i think it is very much like you're trying to kind of draw out the personality or the soul of whatever you're working with, but it's not like that in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, and yes, this is something where there are like competitions for this. People who win these competitions are like not treasures. Like this is a big deal. It's very well respected. Mm-hmm. It's, it doesn't, it's not like what flower arranging might uh, uh, make you think of in the, in the West. Right. Yeah. And this are th- this is one aspect of Sofu his father that bores uh, that is born of many different influences on Hiroshi and he grows up with an artistic legacy more or less. He is given the art school that I think every kid wishes that they could have in their family. Uh, he goes to the Tokyo National University of Fine Arts and Music in 1950, um, and he credited amongst his influences painter and sculptor Okamata Taro, uh, who was an instructor at the school and one of his primary influences. And he was pushing his students to radically change and reconstruct the Japanese art world. Um, now, uh, he all he the trio of Abe, Tashigahara, and Takamitsu, who is the composer of the film that we're talking about yes. today, 
They mm-hmm. all studied also the works of Hanada Kiyoturo, uh, mm. who's a writer, and Taguchi okay. Shuzo, who was a poet and painter. And these were avant-garde artists yeah. who um, who came in tandem with the influences that Tishigahara felt with Western art from folks like Gaudi to Picasso to Cocteau. So mm-hmm. he's blending everything in a big old blender and seeing what Very sticks to so. the wall. And, and just like we said about New Wave folks, right? Very intellectual. This is high high art and high concepts that he's dealing with. So yeah, and he actually made a movie about Gaudi, and uh, so so that's yep. kind of interesting too. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. and I believe that is available on Criterion Channel if anybody wants to check that out. Um, yeah. Now he meets Abe at the Century Society, which is a group for writers, and uh, his first impression of Abe was a man interested in all the arts and seeking a way to bring them together. Um, this uh, would come into practice in the form of their forming many different societies i've never <laughs> formed this many clubs in my life you think it's hard for our friend adam to form a whole club like attaboy clarence imagine uh-huh. imagine you've made several different societies in several different forms of art from sagetsu hall <laughs> yeah. on down to cinema 57 like I, I i'm sorry like the guy has too much time on his hands he needs a he needs a different <laughs> hobby maybe filmmaking who knows um well it's a little bit more of a european sentiment right like the whole idea of a salon and all the you know like you're just gathering together and talking to people i think it's also the time mm-hmm. i think like 50s and 60s kind of intellectuals this is what they did right yeah and he like any intellectual says well say i can handle a camera uh because he gets he goes he breaks into film <laughs> via documentary filmmaking which i think lends to what we see in the movie in such Mm -hmm. a beautiful way because it never feels too stagey um he starts off with short films and works his way into features from 1953 to 1962 he basically goes through his more or less film school um his first big documentary gig was about Hakusai, who was an Edo period woodcut artist that was yes, responsible. Hokusai. In fact, people are probably familiar with him because think like that famous uh, woodblock print of Mount Fuji. Yes. The That's great, Hokusai. Yeah. yeah. And so he makes a documentary about him because he gets the job when the other director pulls out. Uh, yeah. Now, he ends up doing a film called Pitfall, which would be his feature debut. Yes, I have seen that one. Yeah. And this is based off of a television play called Rengoku. Uh, it wins several awards. Uh, he gets the NHK New Director Award, um, and it's his first collaboration with Takamitsu, um, mm-hmm. with whom he had worked together prior prior on a short documentary film about a boxer named Jose Torres. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, he basically had everything going on at once, which has sometimes been described about me and I would argue after reading about <laughs> Tishigahara, not even fucking close because he is balancing a passion for Ikebana sculpture yeah. work and yeah. film. Now all the stuff yeah. I do is center around film. I am not yeah. by any means getting into a pottery class. Well, Sculpture, <laughs> sculpture and Ikebana are very much related, right? Cause mm-hmm. it's similar. And, and to be fair, he puts in his Ikebana work into yeah the films uh, that he makes, yeah. not the least of which the one we're dealing with today. Yes. Um, yeah. He uh, he does, con- uh, in, in form of his Ekebana training, he gains control of the Sugetsu Hall from his dad in 1959, and he renames it the Sugetsu Art Center, uh, which is an overall hub for art activity, including concerts and experimental theater, all initiated by Teshigahara. 
He also sets up Club Cinema 57, which showed many films from Western countries that were not fully accessible in Japan. And these gatherings uh, led him and many other filmmakers contributing to a short documentary called Tokyo 58 as a result of their enthusiasm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, his ability to move into feature films comes because of the formation of the Art Theater Guild, or the ATG. It is established in 1961, and it becomes a hub for distribution and exhibition of foreign art films, and mm-hmm. later becomes a financier of Japanese productions. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, uh, uh, an essay by Cinescope um, that uh, called it a juncture between new wave folks who fled the studios and the avant-gardists rising up. It is also mm-hmm. co-ho- co-owned by Toho Studios. Uh, and Tashikahara said himself, you could say that my path to film was opened up within the circumstances of ATG's birth when those who were cinema's heretics gained a foothold. And I, learning about ATG, it's, it's, uh, it seems like a quote-unquote foreign concept to hmm. what I think America dealt with because I don't feel like we had the same similar auspices when forming the uh, when the new the American New Wave got formed. It feels like there's a more intent focus on financing these films in a way that I don't feel the American corporate structure would have ever allowed. Mm. I could be wrong, but it feels maybe more like UA or something. I mean, it's different philosophy from you. Y- yeah, artists financing and producing and distributing their own work and i think all these artists want creative control which they can't get from a studio agreed yeah that that's very fair like it's not like completely like outside of a norm it just mm-hmm. the way you the way i read it it felt like a much more innovative and thusly uh more progressive form of collaboration with a studio than i think we're used to but it could be my perception mm. i yeah. would i would say that like I, I think that the fact that it's willing to put up half the financing does lend credence. When we talked about the killing, um, Kubrick got a good chunk of financing from it from UA, but then the yeah. rest had to be funded by his producers, uh, or his producer who put his money and his father's money into back up the rest of the budget Agreed. that I, I, UA I don't think cover. that ETG was able to fund a hundred percent of the films it was doing either. No, right? I don't think yeah. so either. It doesn't yeah. seem like so. Yeah, actually, it is more of a UA situation, yeah. especially yeah. during the fifties. Um, yeah. But Tashigahara's name goes beyond Japanese borders at a certain point because in 1965, he makes a movie called Woman in the Dunes. Mm-hmm. It is his second collaboration with Abe and Tamitsu, and it wins him international acclaim and garners him an Oscar nomination for Best Director in 1965. He is the first director of Asian descent to be nominated for Best Director at the Oscars. And that's not Best International Film. That is yeah. Best Director. So like Bong Joon-ho kind of kicked it over the line. But exactly. Uh, Gahara definitely got it started. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, he did yeah. unfortunately lose that award to Robert Wise for Sound of Music, which, uh, oh, oh, okay, I'll give Robert Wise uh, that. Um, uh, uh, it should have been for The Haunting if he was going to win for anything. I'm yes. Sorry. That's the only yes. one I would have. Uh, I, I like Sound of Music. I don't love it. Um, mm. Now, uh, he also gets that film nominated for what was then called Best Foreign Language Film, uh, but it lost mm-hmm. to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Um, and w- I found this funny because like, normally a director doesn't seem to want to do this, um, but when he was invited to show the film at Cannes, 
he cut the film down from 147 minutes to 124 minutes. That's very nice of him. Like that's that's extremely yeah. kind of him because yeah. like I hear some directors going like the theatrical cut is the director's cut. Just don't think too much about it. But then there are other people who are like, this is my specific vision. I like that Tishikahara is kind of like, no, nah, I get it, man. I made a long movie. Here you go. Here's a short version. But so he's riding on a high. So yeah. he comes into yet another Abe adaptation with Face of Another. Um, mm-hmm. Now, uh, you've already talked about the differences between the novel and the film. Uh, mm-hmm. But one thing's for sure is they need to create something very unique that mm-hmm. uh, hasn't even been explored by Teshigahara at this point. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. have, and I, I don't know if I'll get the names right on this per se, but they have two different key elements of the production design involved. One is Arat Isuzaki. Uh, he designed the office and the psychiatrist oh, clinic amazing. with glass partitions in the laboratory. And these are, uh, this comes out of Arat's desire to combine influence of Eastern and Western aesthetic into his mm-hmm. designs. Um, And uh, there's a quote that goes along this. For the first 20 years of my career as a professional architect, I believed that architecture could only be accomplished by irony. It could allude to treason. It could be it it made it possible to create architecture as a criticism. It could admire the vulgar against the noble, the secular against the sacred without shame. It was an unfulfilled wish, a mourning for what was lost. Hiroshima, Holocaust, to bridge Mm -hmm. a gap over a style of wit a sense of humor and a paradox were adopted. So there is a meshing of imagery here. And I would argue it's not even just in the production design, it's in the sound design, but we'll talk about that as we go into the plot. Um, There is a, uh, these partitions uh, that are in the offices too are utilizing Mm -hmm. what is known as Langer lines. And Mm -hmm. they also utilize Da Vinci's Venusian man. And the only thing that I could think of was Tom Hanks as Robert Langdon walking in there and wondering if there's clues. Um, (laughs) Uh, Well, by the way, too, partitions, very much a part of Japanese architecture, right? Because if you're in a Japanese home, they have these kind of screen doors in a way, right? That are uh, kind of, uh, that can make a room big or smaller, right? I think I mentioned, right, that typically these Japanese rooms are based on tatami mats, but you can string two of these rooms together by opening up the screen and now you have a bigger space to be in. There's a lot of modularity in in Japanese homes. And so these screens are, uh, they're called shoji screens. They're very, uh, um, Common. Yeah, but but I would argue that what makes this eerie is that it's a glass partition and it's not. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's that's absolutely that's creating something in the imagery that is unsettling to my normal eye. Um, yes. And it's not and like horror doesn't necessarily always do this, but there are there are people who have played with these ideas in interesting oh. ways. Like like my favorite example is Wes Craven designed Freddy Krueger's sweater based off of two colors that are. Hard yes, to watch hard together to, yeah. in the human yeah. eye. This set is just very unsettling, and I think it really adds to that feeling of unease and horror in mm, the film. Gotcha. Yeah, and it's it's. I think that it's. We'll talk about how he moves the set around, but I I liked how it wasn't alarming to see it become interchangeable throughout the film because mm-hmm. the space itself is. I don't want to say it's blank, but it's definitely open ended. It's a very mm-hmm. open-ended mm-hmm. base level of like, here's our room. Now let's fill it with shit. 
And and mm-hmm. and then there's times when that works to goofy effect. Like if Ed Wood's making a movie, he's like tossing every <laughs> fucking beaker and yeah. tube he can. Doesn't yeah. matter what angle it is. This one yeah. has more intent behind it. Um, yes. Now, additionally, Tomio Miki uh, designed the acrylic walls when mm-hmm. Isozaki was out of Japan for a time. Uh, and he also designed these sculptures of severed ears in small form and in larger sculpture form <laughs> uh, where a patient sits on it one, at one point. Uh, an essayist for Criterion pointed out that the sculpture's artist has a fixation on this orifice, which <laughs> made me giggle way too much. You um, know, in the book, actually, I mentioned there isn't a doctor, but he does go see someone who makes prosthetic and talk about that office having kind of these various prosthetics around it is kind of a body horror and he actually purchases a finger <laughs> to take home with it that yeah we'll talk about the doctor character because i are i agree that he should be there but there is a very very concern con- concerning logic error that i have agreed <laughs> um but um there are elements of Tashigahara's tendency as a director that pop up in this film that were noted by the essayist as well. One of them, which stood out to me immediately, was that apparently this essayist believes that Tashigahara has a tendency for shots of feet. Uh, and I heard squ- oh, I heard Quentin Tarantino out somewhere mind, screaming with delight. Uh, <laughs> he points out that there's a previous use of these in Pitfall and Woman of the Dunes. Um, he's also utilizing the themes of voyeurism that he used yes. in Pitfall prior. One of the elements that's unique to this, though, he's using a contemporary urban setting. Um, mm-hmm. And there is an emphasis on art throughout this entire film, especially the styles of Nihonga um, and surrealism, uh, which I, think I know too, one of these. <laughs> I think, too, they mention I, I did read that, you know, like this film didn't do as well. And perhaps it because it wasn't that kind of more exotic uh, kind of Japanese feeling, right? Mm. That it's more modern, it's in a city. Um, and I think Japanese directors find that challenging, right? So like most of Kurosawa's films that are talked about are the ones like Seven Samurai or Rashomon or, you know, ones that are set in that kind of medieval period, very, very Japanese. And the, and the modern films like High and Low that we talk about don't get as much airtime, I feel. I, I, I have a feeling and I feel like, I think we're getting out of this but there is there was a definite barrier to cross with international titles coming over to our shores where it's almost like as an audience we needed to be spoon-fed slowly uh because i don't yeah you're right i don't see mentions of things like face of another or high and low on mass when i'm hearing some of the new wave american people talking about uh, uh, Kurosawa or yeah. um, or somebody like Tishigahara. Um, yeah. and I do feel like I don't I don't like necessarily like find that a strict fault because I I'm I'm sort of a guy who believes in like cling to what you can and <laughs> and hope that it gets better because there is an element of as 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 uh monotonous as they became the kaiju films from the 50s and 60s did bridge another part of that gap uh, mm-hmm. from a contemporary standpoint but yeah. you're right it doesn't work for films like face of another at this time because this film gets released a couple different times and it mm-hmm. doesn't measure up like i mean criterion has not bothered to put this on blu-ray it's on their eclipse series so it's not even like they've given this a 4k restoration 
But mm-hmm. listening to the essayist on this, you'd think that this is one of the most important Japanese films ever made. Um, or at least he's trying to provide better defense for it. Um, now, one thing about this film that I really enjoy is I like crazy instruments. And a glass harmonica is a crazy instrument. And yeah. it is used throughout this movie the way a theremin brings joy to my soul anytime I watch a, sci- a science fiction film. Yep. Um, now, uh, it's at this point, I think we are able to jump into this plot. And there's a lot. I have a couple of things, actually, before we get there. I just wanted to talk a little bit about some other talent, really quick comments about some of the talent in the film. Yes, please. Let's get into plot. So I really want to call out Tatsuya Nakadai, who is our main actor here. Oh, my inspector. My inspector's back. Yeah. That's right. He is, uh, in my opinion, an international treasure. Mm -hmm. Uh, As of September 2023, when we're recording this, he is still with us. And long may that continue. He's in his 90s now. Come on the show, uh, last Tatsuya. I checked, Come on the show. Come on the yeah, show. Yeah, last I checked, he's still acting. I think he still appears in an occasional theater performance, for example. Not so much uh, in film anymore, but uh, uh, really a, a national treasure, and I believe an international treasure. I do believe he is probably the best actor of the classic era in Japan. Uh, Mifune is amazing. I love him too, but he's more of a movie star than an actor. He's I the would Clark say. Gable. He's the he's the charismatic, handsome. Yeah. Yeah. Nakadai, I mean, Tatsuya Nakadai is kind of not the not a not a you know he's not a poster of loveliness although he is you know he's a good looking guy um but <laughs> that's uh, a weird way to describe the japanese willem defoe <laughs> yeah, oh that's a great analogy that's a great analogy but he has me, a face it's fine <laughs> i mean amazingly talented um you know he's uh rumored that he was kind of lana turner style discovered working as a clerk in a store by kobayashi was he wearing a sweater too (laughs) yeah exactly i was thinking that too uh while he was working at a store yeah so we'll talk more about kobayashi in our next film but uh um he has been he's worked with so many of the major directors of the time Kobayashi probably the most closely um if anybody gets a chance it's on the Criterion channel there's literally like a nine-hour anti-war movie that Kobayashi made that Nakadai I mean he, Tatsuya Nakadai carries it uh, wow all through that I mean it's, it's in three parts so you can you can pace yourself but it's an amazing epic he's in um Harakiri which is Kobayashi's film, which is my favorite film of kind of the samurai, the kind of what are called jidaigeki, which are the period old, old fashioned Japanese films, right? Mm. Of a kind of samurai and all that kind of stuff. It's a uh, fascinating, excellent movie, also anti-war, uh, but kind of in the samurai times. Mm. Um, wonderful film. He's worked with Kurosawa and in particular, uh, after Kurosawa fell out with Mufune, which we discuss in high in our high and low episode. Right. Um, Tatsuya Nakadai kind of became his guy. He was the star of his movies going forward. So in like Ron and uh, other other movies that he made in that kind of period, uh, Tatsuya Nakadai is a star. He's been in films for Narusei, Ichikawa, Teshigahara, lots of lots of famous directors. And I just I feel like if you ever see him in a film, seek it out. He's also been willing to just really kind of go across genres, do lots of different kinds of film. He provides the voice of the devil in Belladonna of Sadness, which is a wonderful animated film. Absolutely not safe for children to watch. It is very much a movie for adults, um, but great, beautiful movie. And he provides 
provides provides a wonderful voice in that. And so mm. uh, I just wanted to call him out because I think he is spectacular and uh, does not get enough recognition, I think, for what he's done. Um, and then Kyo Machiko or Machiko Kyo, if you if you do it kind of Western style, um, is another prolific actor. She plays the wife in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, just passed in 2019 at the age of 95. She's probably best known for Rashomon, which we have, I think, referred to previously, especially in our Kurosawa episode. But she will be in Ugetsu, which we will be covering. Um, And she's probably most known in the West. She was nominated for a Golden Globe for Tea House of the August Moon that Mm. she was in uh, with... um, I'm trying to remember the, who's in there. I think it's Glenn Ford and is it Marlon Brando? Anyway, anyway, a couple, couple of Western actors are in there. So that's probably why she's most known in the West. But she's also another. She typically, she's playing a little bit against type, I would say, here in both Rashomon and Ugetsu. She's playing like a fine Japanese lady of the olden days, right? Mm. Like wealthy, proper. That's probably what her, if I were going to typecast her, that's probably what she's most famous for. Mm-hmm. So this is a bit of a different role. And then uh, Takumitsu, the composer, I just wanted to add a little bit about him. Um, he is a composer in several new wave films. Um, I mentioned Pale Flower recently, uh, just, just before. Excellent noir film by the director Shinoda. That's also on the Criterion channel. I highly recommend it. And what he typically does, and you probably noticed it in this film, is he asks to do not only the score, but the sound design as well. Mm. So he does a lot of sound design and he uses a lot of interesting things to do that. He He's very um, uh, inspired by like impressionist of the past, like WC and folks like that. So his scores are also very impressionistic, setting a mood, very moody scores. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah. Great, I, great I, yeah. He does some stuff with the sound design that um, that aren't strictly music related that I want to touch on. There's one specific one as it relates to the B plot. But let's let's talk about this film. Um, and, right. and Rosh, lead us off here. How does this film open up? How does this open up? <laughs> First shot, I wrote dis- disembodied body parts, right? So you have a lot of body parts. You have a breaking of the fourth wall. Yeah. It's got a very documentary-like feel. And we have the doctor's voice coming through. Recognize these. You know what they are. You don't, do you? You have no idea. They're replicas of body parts. You see? Sadly, this is not only a fi- this is sadly this is not only a finger. It's an inferiority complex in the shape of a finger. It's not that I specialize in treating fingers. I'm a psychiatrist, in fact. Infer- inferiority complexes dig holes in the psyche, and I fill them in. Now, stop right there for a second. Yeah. Goki had a. Yeah. And a condensed version of what yeah. this doctor is, Doctor yeah. No, Doctor No Name, or Doctor No, if you're a Bond fan. Uh, he, uh, there is a question that anybody actually played is, by an Asian man this time. Yeah. Whoa. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a very fair <laughs> point. Take that, James Bond franchise. You got more work <laughs> to do. Um, but there is a inherent question that everybody's going to ask, and I and I, I know that the answer is let it go. But even I have the yeah. question. Why is, is a psychiatrist it, doing this? Why is a psychiatrist <laughs> doing this? Because as far yeah. as I know, he is not played by Bela Lugosi or Boris Karloff. <laughs> yeah, I know. In yeah, which I it would doesn't be- make any sense. I it would even believe sense. Lon Chaney do- Jr. doing this. <laughs> I yeah. don't. I, I find it interesting only from the aspect of like Abe is conflating two different ideas of medicine. Yeah to get yeah. his point across in this screenplay 
Whereas, yeah. I think it goes back to that Jungian thing, right? That like the physical way we man that, that we have these masks that we use to be part of society and that like these masks and identity are very much intertwined and interrelated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked about Cronenberg earlier, very Cronenbergian, right? Like how does flesh and technology and personality go together? Right. right? Uh, That's where this film sits as well. And that's why I think he has a psychiatrist doing this because if you read the book, right, very philosophical, very psychological, this is all about manipulation of identity and persona through using this mask. But the mask is just a device to explore that topic. And that's why I think he uses a psychiatrist to do this. It's almost like Abe and Tashigahara took Richard Vollen from 1935's The Raven and removed his Poe obsession and replaced it with psychology. It's mm-hmm. very, very strange because the language, e- even the way that, even the way that the doctor, um, played by uh, Mikijiro Hira, mm-hmm. the way he is talking about this, mm-hmm. s- the dialogue sounds exactly like some of these early Karloff Lugosi team up films. Mm-hmm. The scientist has this flow of his thoughts. He mm-hmm. he has doubts externally that he mm-hmm. then rationalizes externally on the outset. Mm-hmm. And it, it it was really it was really neat to watch another country attempt this type of narrative with mm-hmm. different results and different intent, but mm-hmm. he is using this exact kind of language. And like it, that I wonder is like in the in the effort to deviate from the book for the purposes of well here's an interesting thing in the book i mentioned jung was mentioned in the book right now i am not a jung expert but the book talks about the fact that jung categorizes there are four types of faces in jungian philosophy i had no idea this is not something i'm expert on i'm only taking it directly from the book and so i wonder if that's part of the reason also why they want a psychiatrist to be the one who's kind of doing all this mold work and creating these faces. Exactly. It's almost like in order to make this digestible for a film audience, they have to accidentally create a mad scientist character. It's like, it's there's it does nothing to strictly support Abe's intent apart from making it digestible to the audience so that the ideas can flow. It is, I, I think it's masterfully done. Uh, I, I I will say if somebody tried to lift the book page for page, I'd probably be disappointed because I appreciate this psychiatrist character as a as a uh, as sort of a Jiminy Cricket figure on the shoulders of Mr. Okimata. But at this, but Okiyama, but at the same time, he's also like got his own plans up his sleeve. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. and it and it kicks off right away with this. I thought this was the most amazing image I've ever seen to kick off any movie period. Can I call out one thing before that though? Cause I do want to talk about that. It's this waltzy music that we have throughout, right? Mm-hmm. So the credits music is waltzy with this kind of multitude of humanity coming in and out. And this waltz theme goes throughout the film, which is a little bit kind of counter programming, right? Because the movie is so modern and mm-hmm. so minimalist. And so having a waltz on top of that, I think is very interesting. But yes, the talking x-ray. Have you ever seen that in another film? No. I don't think 
think I have. No, I unless it was amazing. No, unless it's a Simpsons cartoon where Homer's getting X-rayed before True. going to the nuclear power plant. This True. is unique, and it was I loved it, and it's unsettling just to watch. Like yes. I started focusing on how teeth move in the human body when yeah. speaking, and it felt yeah. like watching a ventriloquist dummy in a way I wasn't supposed to watch him. It was I very, thought it was an amazing shot, yeah. and I think given everything you've told us about Tishigahara's background as an artist, it feels like the kind of thing a, like an experimental artist would do. I agree. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This, is, this yeah. is in line with what I expect this background to have achieved. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what is amazing about it is that it... It's not isolating as imagery. It's not, it doesn't isolate me as the audience member. I feel sometimes with new wave films from France, I feel isolated. I mm. feel I feel disconnected yes. from, I from the artist's yep. intent. This does not give me that sense. Mm -mm. And part of it is because it is steeped in the story and mm -hmm. not steeped in look what I can do. You Correct. know, which I think yes. is a key thing about this film is yes. that. There's only one time in this film where he's just doing something for the sake of doing something. And yeah. I don't know how if I understand it, maybe you will, but we're not we're not there yet, but we'll get to it. Um, yeah. but we are establishing Mr. Okiyama, played yeah. by uh, Nekadai. Hatsuya Nakadai. Yeah. yeah. And he has been in an accident. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and, and he's describing it so calmly, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's literally talking about his face getting burned off and he's just very monotone. Which, by the way, we never see in full. And I love no. that. I yeah. I think that th that's one of the reasons why I think it's a horror film, especially because it, it, there are two ways to go through this. Either you show the monster or you don't. This film makes an active attempt because of its themes to never fully unveil what the accident has done to him. We mm -hmm. get uh, we get an idea of it, but part mm -hmm. of the horror of this film mm -hmm. is that you have to only imagine what how yes. bad it is. You do not And like I said, yeah. the book goes into detail and like you, I agree. I'm kind of glad that the the film doesn't show what the book says because the book goes into like all of these keloid scars that he has and Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Huss is mentioned. You know, I don't want to see that. It's much more horrific to imagine what might be happening. Man, Cronenberg and Abe should should have had a drink together. At I some know, point. right? They would have enjoyed each other's company. <laughs> Maybe he could have helped out with the fly, made it even more intense. Um, but um, yeah, so we see Okiyama here getting his X-ray done, and then we mm -hmm. are pretty much cut away to him in bandages. Yeah. Hanging yeah. out with his wife and his wife. Yeah. And so uh, this new wave technique, right? Lots of these cuts. Like you're not, mm -hmm. you're, you're unsettled because you kind of never know where you are or what's happening. It's like, oh, wait, what's happening now? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. nobody tells you he's now at his house or whatever. It's just like he's there. Yeah. Um, he, but yeah. And, and we mm -hmm. get, we get a sense of how his wife passes the time, which is gem polishing. Yes, exactly. I... In the book, she makes buttons. Uh, and it's a button that he uses when he uh, tries to seduce her the second time. But oh, yes, okay, uh, okay, yeah. yeah, gem polishing way more yeah. reasonable than button making. I think so. How more do you make a button? <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. We don't, have to go to the class with his wife. Apparently, I, no, know. I'm not. I no, I've got too many things on my plate. I'm not going to this <laughs> class. I will say though that, like, also what I love as the setup is. He is using Invisible Man imagery in a domestic drama. Okay, can, I just want <laughs> There is so much Invisible Man in this movie, and yeah. I'm so glad we covered that earlier because time after time, I'm just like, Tommy, 
Ningen. Tomei Ningen. Tomei Ningen is the name for the Invisible Man in, in Japanese. And mm -hmm. actually, that actual word is used within the film. Yes, So we're it not is. the only ones noticing it. So, no, yeah. no, no, no. Shikahara is just like, we know what this is. Okay, yeah. keep going. Um, the only difference is he's not fighting a human fly, really. That's the only real difference. Um, Good point. But, yeah, uh, well, that was part two. We never got part two because part two... Part one didn't do well enough, unfortunately. I, I think that's, that was part they, two. I think they were trying to get Cronenberg attached to that, but he said, I want to make Crash To instead. be honest <laughs> with you, actually, Zach, I know we were joking about it, but he has more of the personality of the fly guy. Like, remember the fly guy was mm -hmm. from like lab and he was convicted of war crimes. Yeah. And now he's like, has just a super like nihilistic antisocial personality. That's he, what this guy becomes by the end. He just doesn't so. have a magic potion to make him small. No, that's, that magic potion never leave my fucking how do you become a human fly why magic of course <laughs> just like no i need i need him to go through a transponder or whatever the hell um but um uh yeah he he goes into like oh some banger lines right here mm -hmm. like you can't kill something that's already dead that's a number that one line. hit on the charts um, uh why are people so biased about skin color and cheekbones and such and i'm like Wait, so industrial accidents that hit your face are an instant cure for racism, question mark? Right. Like, no, so the book also does kind of talk a little bit about Korean immigrants as well. Mm. And like, why is there all this racism against Koreans? And so that is a theme in the book. I think they're teasing that out a little bit here without directly talking about it. Mm -hmm. But the, you can't kill something that's already done. I mean, we already talked about like existential philosophy in this movie, right? Like, there you go. Bang. Right, there yeah. So, yeah. This, yeah. This one's my favorite, though. It's more of an isolated track on the B side. Civilization demands light even at night but a man yeah. without a face is free yep. only when darkness rules the world and i'm like now that's the extended cut that when they the put on a rob zombie album here's <laughs> what i liked when the face is closed off so is the soul the Ooh. soul becomes rotten the face <laughs> is the door to the soul uh yeah. reduced to ruins this is this is my diary as a teenager asking a bunch <laughs> exactly. of a bunch of yeah. these questions oh yes. my god this is made for 20 year olds it is it's, like, exi yeah. it's exactly it's existentialism as a gen x teenager i was so knee deep in that <laughs> um yeah we were made for it right gen x is made for existentialism especially when you're a teenager yeah uh, he's totally into that he's like comparing himself to a grotesque deep sea fish i need uh um, i need not to die i need joking right but yeah this is a it's a huge transformation for a person. And, you know, we talked about some of the things that people from the bombings were dealing with. He's kind of going through the same thing, but on his own. And he actually mentions that earlier when he's in the doctor's office, that like he's kind of bummed out that he isn't part of a greater societal suffering. He's up to doing this all on his own. Yeah. Right? And and when we're yeah. and when when I'm quoting that dialogue in that jest, it's only because we have heard these kind of lines said for the yes. purposes of mockery. And yeah. that I I like watching a film treat it sincerely without mm -hmm. with it being a part of the story and not a point of get out of my room, dad. Like mm -hmm. that yeah. that that's that's refreshing because yeah. now it, it 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 calls out the mockery that the '90s played with because they yes. don't understand anybody. Um, right. Now we also get a sense of his work life too. So one thing I want to mention before we get him because he definitely goes to the office after this, but. Um, I think the critical thing that we're seeing in this scene, and it comes up multiple times in the book, is that he approaches, he puts the moves on his wife, and he feels like he's rejected by her. Right? Yes. So that is happening in that first scene. He kind of grabs onto her legs and starts to kind of 
you know, touch mm-hmm. her and whatnot. And uh, she she kind of says no. Um, and he feels tremendously rejected. And that in, in the book, it's a lot of the motivation for his behavior and how he's acting and all that kind of stuff. And so I just wanted to call that out because that's pretty central. To oh, it, it, com- it comes back all throughout this. It, yes. it, it would be argued that every time he visits the house, it's just to do that and then go back out the door. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I mean, very much, you know, as I was thinking about, it, especially in the book at the end, like he's got very much what we would call these days an incel personality, right? Mm. That's what he becomes. He's a man who's kind of feels rejected by women and therefore is going to take out his violence on the world. And that's kind of where he ends up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But then he goes to the office. Yes. In his, in his invisible man look. Yeah. He goes to the office at this point. Now he goes to the office after this and he, he, (laughs) I love this employer. He's so nice. (laughs) And he's so, well, the first thing he asked though, right. And I think this is once again, critical to kind of the philosophy of the movie. He asked the secretary when he gets there, how do you know it's me? Yes, yes, yes. Why aren't you stopping me? But you work. How do you know it's me? And that's core of this film, right? What is your identity and where does that come from? Also, how do you broadcast that to other people? Also, there is the idea of everyone trying to pretend that nothing happened. That that is that is that is an idea as somebody who has dealt with trauma and has and is friends with people who have dealt with trauma. Like the 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 I will I will say this right now from my perspective, the worst thing that people can do for me sometimes is pretending that nothing has happened. Right. It does not, it, it, it feels like a diversion and it doesn't feel, I don't feel that you empathize with me as a result yeah. of it. Um, yeah. And I understand that that works in several different ways. So I'm not in, in, in immune to that, but I felt a very strong connection to that specific idea of him, of, of him wondering why is nobody just, addressing Mm -hmm. this now his Mm -hmm. employer is uh doing that Mm -hmm. but in a very kind the kind Mm -hmm. that i wish i could have dealt with before yeah the better bosses i think we've seen this whole series i mean yeah he's a good boss he he's the kind of guy who would be like of course you're gonna strike i totally understand it but i'll see you in five Mm -hmm. months (laughs) yeah yeah like i get it i'm not stupid i'm aware we're we're pieces of shit here up at the corporate level goodbye um but he does say to him like hey like um uh are you do you want to come we want you back at work and he goes like well, can I take some time off, like a leave of absence mm-hmm. to recover and figure out what he, mm-hmm. what he wants to do and who he is? And the employer mm-hmm. agrees and grants it. And I'm like, that is that is a that is life that is science fiction that doesn't exist um, yeah. unless unless a law is slapped down in front of your face. <laughs> um, and he uh, he also he uses a line within this of like sometimes I feel like a like even a monster to myself. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, it's a great line. Another there. This script, I thought, was amazing. I wrote down more lines from this film than any other film we've covered so far. Mm-hmm. Like Line after line, I'm like, this stuff's amazing. Yeah, at a certain um, point, it was easier to describe the scenes and and it was better to just detail certain, like point out certain lines because the mm-hmm. scenes themselves are fairly basic. basic. Yeah, yeah, they don't, they, they don't like, it's, like I like normally I love writing down the whole diatribe of like, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This yeah. one, I was kind of like, I think everybody's heard these tropes before, but there are specific lines that stand out, especially yeah. when we get to uh, the psychiatrist office. But before that, yeah. he walks down yeah. the street and we do have, I don't think it's entirely noticeable. I could be wrong, but I feel like it's a mixture of people just going about their day 
Some mm-hmm. people gawking at him and other yeah. people looking back, taking a second look of like, what did I, I just see? <laughs> I think they did a great job in this film of helping you understand what it's like to be a person who looks different from other people and therefore gets stared at, treated differently. I noticed I broke my foot when I was in Italy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I noticed when I was like, I, they gave me some crutches to walk on and whatever. And so I noticed when I had my crutches and then I came back to the U.S. and got my cast on. During that whole period, I could notice people staring at me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they were looking at me in a different way than when I didn't have a cast or crutches. I've had, and so, I've had that at work and I right? didn't even have like physical injuries. Like I've had that and at work where, yeah. It's not, a, I don't think it's even conscious among the people doing it. They're just like, oh my gosh, this looks different from what I used to seeing. So I'm going to take an extra beat when I look at this person. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, and you notice, I noticed that over and over again in this movie. And I thought they did a great job of that. Like just showing how people react to him differently, treat him differently, look at him differently. Yeah, and it uh, the it it point it, it it becomes to the point of when he's at his psychiatrist's office. The first line out of the psychiatrist is, "You're prodding me to cut off your hand instead of replacing your finger," which means I want you to kill me. Yeah, uh, he wants to die and yeah. burn his wife in the process. Yeah, he wants yeah. a mercy killing, and instead, the psychiatrist proposes the idea of a mask. Yep. And I I love this line from the psychiatrist because it it is the it is a uh it's similar to the Dr. Volan. There is it isn't plastic surgery, but there is a way. Uh is I doubt it would succeed, but it would make an interesting experiment. It's against <laughs> medical ethics, but you've twisted my arm. However, there's one condition. You must tell me everything you do from now on. I'm lending you the mask as a therapeutic tool. It is not yours to keep. By the way, there is a weird relationship, right, going on between this doctor and the and the and the patient. Right. It's very unprofessional. It's very dysfunctional. I don't know. Maybe some homoerotic overtones. I don't really know. There's some kind of fetish here, right? It's kind of like the arrangement where like couples will sometimes have, like you can do whatever you want, but I get to watch kind of thing. Yeah. That's what it felt like to me. It's a voyeurism. Exactly. Yeah. And he's playing that to a T and he's blending it with a digestible form of a mad scientist that we can understand. Um from an aesthetic standpoint too we've had uh we have this lab which is bare but filled and yeah. what i mean is is that like the encompassing area is a blank slate that can go either white or black mm-hmm. but it's everything that's filled in the middle and the, some of it is utilized to hide his appearance other mm-hmm. parts of it are used for interesting elements of illusion. And one of them is you've twisted my arm and there's a snap zoom to one of the walls that has the Venusian man on it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that is good. Like, good mm-hmm. for good for you. God, props. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's yeah. also shots of uh, intercut of the of, of uh, Okiyama's bandages being removed mm-hmm. and a plaster mold being made. And there's these mm-hmm. handheld shots of the molding. I love all this process. Oh. I, I loved it. I love that they went into all of this. I thought it was amazing. It, it's, it reminds me of how I feel about Citizen Kane at times where it's like all these shots existed before. It's just now you're just all using them in a collage because he does this throughout the movie. Yeah. He's using yeah. several different styles to tell this story. Like yeah. there's like La Jate comes into this movie at a certain point. Yes. Um, yes. But uh, he, uh, it, it's 
I, like the way they're trying to hide his disfigurement, it's like an anti-Lon Chaney vibe where it's like, we don't want to look at you. We don't yeah. want to see, I don't need to see the phantom makeup this time. Thank you very much. And he's got it distorted. Like you could feasibly figure it out through beakers and test tubes. Like there's transparent items, but they're distorting the imagery in a funhouse fashion. So it's not, it's not definitive. Your mind is bringing something to it in a way that comes very much heads to home at the very end of the movie. Um, the uh, But we also see that Okiyama is beginning his process of change that the doctor's proposing because he seeks out a hideout at another apartment yes, complex. Yes, the whole apartment shenanigans. Yeah. Yes. And, so he's uh, going to, yeah, exactly. He's kind of beginning a new life, mm -hmm. right? So now he's going to live in a different place. He's going to buy new clothes. Like he's going to make himself a new person. I, I, I will say though, I have a problem with this superintendent of the building because he's got two <laughs> issues uh, in his in his corner that, that I find very, very much, well, this is your own fault. First of all, if he's always with a girl in his apartment whenever he has lessers ringing the bell at night, yeah. tough luck. If you want to be a landlord, them's the break. Sometimes yeah. you've got to deal with that if you want to sit on your ass and collect rent. And by the way, I just want to call out this actor. His name is Minoru Chiaki. He is in a lot of Kurosawa films. He's in that Toho stock company. You'll see him a lot. So nice. uh, yeah, great, char great character actor. But yes, always with some woman. And then he has that dodgy relationship with his quote unquote daughter. Right. right. To me, versus the book, this relationship seemed sexualized to me. I don't know if that was meant to be in there. I got that feeling. I got like a very weird feeling about I, this I quote won't unquote daughter. I don't disagree fact, with that. I don't disagree with that at who all. Say like, yeah, ma, yeah, he is the daughter, quote unquote. Like almost like, you know, how in pre you know code films they'd be like this is my niece or whatever right like i got a i got that feeling it's That's the it, feeling I got. it's a very very difficult piece of imagery to suss through because it is yeah. very creepy it's very unsettling in multiple yeah. ways not even just with the superintendent but later on yeah. with mr okiyama i okay. i don't know why this is here uh it's not yeah this <laughs> angle was not in the book in the book she's mainly there to just be a vehicle for him to go to the toy store and buy the yo-yo which also causes him to buy a gun yes that's basically there wasn't too much with that character in I, the book. and i'm not saying you need to trim this film but yeah. As an editor, I'm looking at this yeah. and going like, this means nothing to the main story. Actually, I think the main reason she's in both the book and the movie is to be an example of how he's not able to hide his identity. That is a right? very, that's a very good point. And, and while I don't, I don't like the way they handled it in the film because they make it seem like because she's, you know, has a mental mm -hmm. uh, challenge that she's somehow more primitive. I did not like that in the, the film. Oh no, that, that, that line, I wrote that, that line down. Hugely and it problematic. Is, it is yeah. disturbing as all sin. It's, it's awful. But in the book, it's more that his experience with that girl and his experience with his wife happened very close together. Mm -hmm. And so it's that sense that you may think you're fooling the world, but nobody else is fooled. Right. That's kind of how it is in the book. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, we, uh, he, he, he goes to look at this apartment and he basically gets mm -hmm. the apartment. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. and he starts, uh, uh, he goes back to, um, the, the doctor. psychiatrist, the doctor, yeah, yeah. and we see yeah. him through the Langer lines, uh, yep. which uh, are utilized to designate 
parts of the skin and pores, I believe is what it is. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, it's a, yeah. they, they, they've referred to it on Wikipedia as the cleavage lines, which I'm like, well, okay. Uh, interesting. <laughs> e- yeah. Cleavage. Ramp <laughs> boop. Uh, but, um, but, uh, Okiyama, um, uh, <laughs> well, the psychiatrist wants to know what, the purpose is for the double life throughout the mass. Now, Okiyama mm-hmm. says, uh, mm-hmm. we'll compensate for one another. Uh, but he mm-hmm. kind of goes vague into it because his real mm-hmm. intention is I'm going to seduce my wife and call her mm-hmm. out, which is mm-hmm. a terrible idea. Don't do that. Yep. Um, but, yep. uh, the psychiatrist theorizes on jealousy and how it pertains yes. to his wife. And so we already kind of figure we know what's going to happen anyway. Um, but he says he wants it for all people, including her. And, he asks, are you more interested in rejoining society than escaping it? Uh, and he, when he replies about it, the psychiatrist says it's the healthier option, but he expresses the fears of him wanting to escape from himself. The psychiatrist mm-hmm. is not strictly a mad scientist in this respect because he is kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? Yeah. Because uh, I'm into it, but if you're not into it, I'm not going to force my fetish on you. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and this also begins with them showing uh, the putty, the skin the putty, putty that they yeah. use. And I, what I a great cut. And I made that a note. A and I made a note. I don't care how anybody perceives it. I meant it's a shame that he doesn't press it against a newspaper cartoon. I know. I was thinking <laughs> exactly that. I'm like, hey, it's silly putty. I wish yeah. there was a scene uh, where he's like, look, book, it can play, show you Garfield. <laughs> in, in the book, they really nerd out with a lot of the science and it's like a sodium algadite mask and all this other crap they get into a lot of the science as well which i thought was it was a good thing to cut that in the film yeah, yeah. and that image by the way uh, against the langer lines is in that's a branding image right there it's like that's great. the poster yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I know. it's fantastic it's so good. um yeah and then he as they're i mean they're they're preparing for this he even tells them like i found a new hideout uh, a new secret layer for my legion of doom uh, and he goes back to his house and once again keeps pushing boundaries with his wife. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, she denies that she is trying to avoid him. And he becomes even more paranoid that an affair is happening and uh, or at the very least that she has lost interest in him. Um, and But he, he sort of tries to be self-aware of this. He goes, you may be a victim too after all. Until a few days ago, I half seriously intended to carve up your face until it mm-hmm. looked as bad as mine. It would yeah. serve you right. So it's like, oh, you're getting that. No, no, you didn't go there at all. Yeah, um, he says it, that those lines are directly from the book. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, that sounds, mm-hmm. that sounds yeah. very specific to a book yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like how the camera follows... Mrs. Okayama's re, uh, reactions, but the actress—it's mm-hmm. almost like you're trying to set up some kind of suspense that is definitive. But the actress is playing it down the middle, and it's pretty perfect because was that what she actually thought in terms of her husband's paranoia, or is she truly baffled and befuddled into silence by his assumptions? The actress is so good that she is playing it both yeah. ways at the same time. It yeah. is not definitive and it doesn't need to be because it saves it for that perfect moment at the end where she reveals what she already knew. 
And I think that that's like, I think that's an example of great acting is if you are able to play it both ways. Yeah, that's right. Where like, you know, the backstory, but you can't give away the backstory. And so you have to act as if the backstory is in you, but you can't be overt about it. Yeah, it's it's similar to James Cagney and Angels with Dirty Faces when he gets sent to the death to the electric chair. It's like, are are you going out as a rat or are you genuinely afraid of getting fried? Like, those are wonderful elements of it. But Mm -hmm. um, he also talks about a uh, um, uh, the idea of the monster is always to blame. What a convenient stereotype. Everything's the monster's fault. Um, and uh, and I I like that line. It's a very interesting, aware mm-hmm. line of mm-hmm. horror at large. Um, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. uh, it's certainly a line that's applicable to how monsters were perceived during the counterculture. Um, and how and, and like when you think about someone like uh, Frankenstein's monster, right? Yeah. Like we actually feel a lot of sympathy for him. He's just lonely and he doesn't know what to do. Yeah. Or, and, you know, yeah, he's burned as a murderer, but he didn't really murder. He just didn't know what he was doing. Or the treatment of the sideshow performers and freaks also yes. comes to mind and mm-hmm. how those ideas are not acceptable until a new wave comes around and redefines and reshapes that idea for a societal means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Uh, he says there are monsters who there are monsters who act like people and people who act like monsters. Even monsters have their pleasures. And that line beautifully blotches us a uh, blotches us in to the B story. Yes. Um, now I will be upfront. I like this movie. However, it is not a five star movie for me on the basis that this B story is not well edited into the main story. I don't. Yeah, I just I think, don't think um, so. Yeah. So as I mentioned in the book, it comes at the very end. It's the second to last chapter in the book mm-hmm. where he's basically he's already done the revelation to his wife. His wife has reacted, and now he's explaining how. I felt rejected and I had just gone to see this movie where the brother didn't reject his sister, which, you know, it's problematic as it is, but I agree. It it doesn't work. It doesn't work in the film as well as it does in the book. I think this is one, maybe the only point where I would say that. I think that I, I, I understand from a director standpoint to a degree why you would want to try this, Mm -hmm. but I think it's a it's a case where if I have that idea, I put it down on film, but then I go into the editing room, and if I don't feel that it's working, I get rid of it. I don't think Tashikahara put has... it together. I think yeah. the reason it worked in the book is it wasn't snippets like this. Mm-hmm. It was and like, it's... hey, I went to see a movie, and let me tell you what happened in that movie, and everything's together. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. If you want to stop your movie that way into the movie to tell this other B story as an allegory, do it all the way through, but intersplicing right. it throughout the it film. Didn't work. You know, it didn't work. It thinks it's working. That's the thing. It yeah. thinks it's saying something very profound, but it's not. Yeah. Your, your A story is saying things that are profound. Your B story yeah. is a beautiful movie that I wish had its own 90 minutes <laughs> to tell its story yeah. because yeah. it sounds like a very interesting sequel. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, or at the very least, side story in the same context. But mm-hmm. it just doesn't work. I will say though that it is film. It is not only filmed beautifully, but mm-hmm. it's probably yeah. some of the best self-reflexive imagery I've seen from a Japanese film of this era. Um, yeah. The sound design, in particular, because yes. of yeah, like a Hitler speech in there. Well, I mean, the, there was all kinds of stuff going on. I was yeah. not. I was not expecting that yeah. because my assumption would have been. If you're going to allude to that, wouldn't you be pulling from a speech by the emperor 
or um oh. uh, the emperor didn't really give speeches that's actually why you know the end of world war ii was such a big deal because mm. that was the first time people heard the emperor's voice because uh, the americans basically said could you please say something to just indicate to people that the war is over because they were afraid people wouldn't take that seriously okay so that's when they finally pulled out the emperor and said you go on the radio and do this and that was the first time people most people the average person had heard his voice so i think that's part of the and also the emperor was largely a figurehead the emperor was not the one really driving the fascistic speeches and ideology you know, no like no that. it's the so war. I think I think it's more also yeah. just like Hitler's voice is so recognizable and the and his even if you don't hear any of his words the cadence of how he talks yeah right? I, 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 I I had a realization this week of just like yeah. man like anytime that voice comes up it's like a terrible dog whistle that gets my attention going like oh Hitler's talking oh fuck yeah. <laughs> oh no 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 he's in the house um that that, that yeah and it's like because I watch a lot of World War II documentaries too and like it's yeah. it's almost like if somebody underlay is it even at a small decibel yeah. level? I'm like, huh? Yeah, I know. No. Oh, he's, we're just oh, he's trained. Back. We're yeah. just trained to, yeah, recognize the the horror of it, right? <laughs> like what that voice led to is just horrific. Um, I also just want to call out that psychiatric ward. So many uh, flashbacks for me to Page of Madness uh, when we were seeing um, that that ward that they built. It's one of two instances that I noticed a Page of Madness at work here. Yeah. Um, and yeah. this one in particular, I felt the same uneasiness. Yes. As a page of madness, but it Agreed. felt more grounded and less expressionistic, which I appreciated. Agreed. Like yes, I appreciate the lighting. It's daytime outside. It's different, right? Right. Yeah. And also, but also it feels a lot more, it feels less contrived. It feels yes. a little bit more natural. It, there's mm -hmm. a, there's a, there's a fluidity to the imagery that mm -hmm. does not suggest something that has been rigidly designed. Um, Cause that's what yes. expressionism can do. In fact, there is a, literally a shot of her descending the stairs that looks expressionist. I loved that stairwell. I mm -hmm. just wrote down beautiful stairwell shot. Yeah, yeah exactly. But this yeah. woman who's got the scar on her face, who is throughout yeah. this, she goes through the realm of rejection and yes. uh and uh a taunting or or terror yeah. terror in the span mm -hmm. of less than three minutes maybe mm -hmm. uh yeah. and uh children gawk at her yep. me men who think she's uh attractive, yeah. attractive yeah. and it, in a way yeah. that was kind of nice because instead of like you know continuing to uh pester her they just run away i guess yeah yeah exactly yeah. um and we have this uh the 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 mental patient who terrifies her to the point where she runs down the stairs and he goes stupid yeah. girl i meant to tell her something nice and it's yeah there's something on on odd about that that's where the hitler speech was happening it's, so yeah it's very weird yeah, yeah. very bizarre mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. then it moves back into our a story mm -hmm. uh opening on the sh um on that shot of the putty again being rolled and yes. formed and he just loves it. The doctor just loves making this mask. Exactly. He's yeah. Really he's, he speaks yeah. of his work with uh, with pride. Yeah. And he still doesn't understand why he would do it. He goes, I don't know why I would be this nuts, but I'm going to be this nuts. And yeah. uh, this leads to a convo about the, an affair that he's having with his mm -hmm. with his secretary. Lab slash assistant. assistant. Yeah. I don't know what she is, but yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. he says a line that I really love. Uh, which I think is, is uh, I'd like to give helpful health hints that are obvious, which is sugar, please. I've been having, I've been smoking too much. My tongue is raw. <laughs> if you smoker like I am, uh, I, I do a vape pen, but it, the, the same rule applies. If your tongue is getting raw or something's wrong with it, maybe, maybe cut back and drink some, or at least drink some water, please. 
Thank you. That was your health lesson for the day. Okay, good. Um, All right. Yeah. Maybe just quit smoking. That would be the best. Well, yes, but um, <laughs> let's let's be honest. The world has not given me a reason to give up nicotine, and until it does, mm. I'm sticking firm. Um, okay. Now, um, <laughs> uh, that's uh, that. Yeah, it's up to the world to change before I change. I see. Um, okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> unreasonable request. Um, okay. Now, uh, but they, they, he does uh, say the line that any Frankenstein doctor would say, which is, we're violating a cardinal law of humanity. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and that uh, puts us back to the next scene with Okiyama kneeling uh, yeah. and peeping through the keyhole of his room yep. where his wife yep. has flowing lingerie on. And he goes to yes. his own office and proclaims yes. that he has turned into a monster. It's uh, called the nozoki in Japanese. Yeah, that kind of voyeurism, spying on someone through the keyhole. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which so, he gets his yep. voyeurism shot and his foot shot all in one setting, Ooh, which is nice. Yeah. yeah. And this happens, by the way, many times in the book. So that happens repeatedly. Right. Well, it, I'm glad that he relegated it down to one. Uh, um, agreed. Uh, agreed. Now, the, there's transitions again to the scarred woman and her brother. Yep. And yep. she's asking, and I. this is why I want this to be its own film. She asks, will there be another war? Yeah. Will there be another war? Yeah. And, you know, <sighs> this is just anxiety from the whole thing they've, you know, basically being nuclear bomb survivors. It's just an anxiety that's constant within her. I, right? I like that idea, though, because mm-hmm. I wish that was its own movie. I'm sure it's its own movie by another director elsewhere. Yeah. But and, and, and yeah, I mean, in the book, it is a movie. So like, yeah, I would love to see this as a movie. Uh, the parts that are in there are beautiful. It just doesn't mesh well with the other story. That's the problem. No, yeah. no, it doesn't. No, it's 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 clashing too hard and and loses its, its power as a as an allegory. Um, yeah. And uh, this uh, when he um, uh, when we go back out of it, back to the A story, Okiyama goes back to his work to uh <laughs> to lay down hits on the secretary hits on the secretary yes that is pretend like i'm drunk yeah yeah exactly uh but then he goes back into the office and basically uh says the following covid lines from now on i'll exist via telephone calls documents and letters no offense but all you'll see of me is my signature and i I wrote down wants to work remotely yeah exactly exactly. wants to work remotely or is howard hughes one of the two (laughs) um and uh that he uh um, he, uh, he says a line that I love, which is a few minutes looking at me leaves you exhausted. And I was like, yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. That's why I feel for everybody <laughs> has to look at my face. Um, but there is a, uh, but there, yeah, yeah it, it's very much, he is establishing within the, he is establishing his ability to assume two lives now. This And is- in the book, they actually take this a step further and they talk about the fact um, he's kind of having this internal dialogue of like, well, you see people in the bandages, right? Right after they have their accident or whatever. Right. right. But then do you see them again? Like what happens to them? Mm-hmm. And there's this sense that like once the bandages come off, you're just withdrawn and at home all the time. Yeah. That you, you don't interact with people anymore and that eventually you are forgotten. Like your existence isn't even there anymore. You mm-hmm. failed. You're just not existing anymore. You are after re- this injury. Yeah, you're removed yeah. from your routine a little bit, and, that... and society at whole as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting question, right? You see the bandaged man. Do you ever see the man after the bandages come off? 
Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, no, you don't. No. They just kind of retreat. No. Yeah. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. why he's trying to pre- create something new for himself exactly. to get out there. Exactly. And he's he doesn't g- want to be forgotten. No. Yeah. And he's going to get further in that goal because mm-hmm. uh, Okiyama. Now we're going to go look for a face. Yeah. We'll find a face. Oh, they don't, yeah. they don't need to look far. They found him. They scoped out a target pretty quick. And I think they've done a good job, right? In just kind of the costume of this costuming of this man, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can tell that he's kind of hard on his luck, right? Yeah. This is a man like he's not scary. Uh, you know, like scary fringe of society, but he's definitely someone who's hard on his luck and would probably be willing to take a couple hundred bucks. Yeah, it's it it's like short to. short of him having needle marks in his arm, like exactly. this is a desperate heroin addict exactly. or a desperate drunk yeah. or whatever. Exactly. Um, and exactly. there there is something very Hitchcockian about the way they proposition him. Mm-hmm. It it's it gave me strangers on a train vibes. Crisscross. I was just yeah, thinking that. Crisscross. Yeah. Crisscross. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and there's yeah. this intercut imagery over a construction site where there uh, words of voyeurism shot of just like we we scoped you out, we found you, and it's like yeah. oh, that is interesting. And it cuts yeah. in there two different times. And it's just a nice insert. Uh, it's 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 a wonderful way to work with that. Oh, editing. and by the way, in the book, when he's going to look for someone, he thinks he's going to find them at a ma- a no mask exhibit. Remember, I told you no <laughs> forms of theater, which they do in masks. Yeah. So there happens to be a museum exhibit of no mask. So he's like, oh, I'm, I'll go in there and I'll find somebody because they're interested in masks. And then of course he goes in and there's nobody in the exhibit. So <laughs> of course there is because they're like, no man, no is out, yes is in. <laughs> um, no, I'm joking. Um. So then Okiyama goes back home again, uh, this time to tell his wife, I'm going out of town for business, uh, sort of planting the seeds of what's to come later on. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when we get the makeup talk, uh, yes. which uh, uh, was very unexpected. Uh, huh. Before we get into the line, the lines that she gives, I want to point out that this there's this excellent two shot that almost seemed like a, a clash against Ozu. Uh, and I'm not uh-huh. I'm not strictly Ozu-centered, uh, uh-huh. but Ozu, typically his characters are on the floor. Yeah. This one, they're in chairs, Western-ish yep. chairs. Mm-hmm. So I felt like there was a uh, uh, an opposition to uh, an yeah. Ozu imagery. Well, it's a domestic scene, but it's westernized, right? Yes, so. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And what, because, and that it's added to by the fact that there is an internal clash of East and West influence in the design of this apartment. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So that's why I kind of got that feeling and of like- And that's not uncommon, by the way. A lot of homes, which I think is super cool, a lot of homes in Japan will mix the two styles. And you may even have, like, let's say the first floor is Western style, but your bedrooms are all tatami mats or something. You know, like they do really cool. I think it's super cool. I wish we had more of that kind of stuff here. But, it, it would certainly yeah. it would certainly be more interesting, but it, yeah. it, it just, it sets up this conversation that she has about makeup beautifully. Yes. Um, because she asks him, have you you ever wondered why women wear makeup during the era of the tale of Genji women believed it was a virtue to conceal their faces that's why poems of the time only mention their black hair even now in Arab countries a woman's face still remains hidden it's a sign of humility as long as a woman is a woman her face isn't worth showing without makeup which I didn't really know how to process it it was just an interesting line that came out where I was just like I don't 
I wasn't prepared for this discussion in in the mad scientist face swapping movie. Um, <laughs> They're all just musings on identity and how you present yourself in public, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So now we're getting kind of a perspective of women and particularly women in traditional cultures. Let me give you even just a, a another culture corner moment here. Yes. And we're, we're about to see this in some of the movies we're going to see in the next part of our series here is when we go back into samurai times, mm-hmm. when a woman got married, after she got married, she would blacken her teeth when mm. she was in public. And you're about to see that in some of the films we see. And it's just a really weird effect, right? Where you see this beautiful woman, but her teeth are all blackened. And I think that's part of that, right? Like she's married now, so she has to kind of dim her attractiveness when she's outside of her home. Interesting. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. I, 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 again, like I... As a guy, I just didn't like. I just didn't know how to strictly process that. It's like it almost felt like at that point I wrote it down and I was like, I I don't know if I have a comment on it because I don't think I have enough equipment in me to fully accept. I think of. I mean, I can't tell you. Okay, I'll just kind of tell you my experience as a woman is there's when you when you hit when you hit a certain age, uh, it's kind of that those middle years in your life, right? right. So kind of yeah. adolescence early adulthood i think there is a feeling a lot of the time that you w- the way you present yourself should be in a way that you are attractive right um and that that's the age when you start wearing makeup and you're doing interesting things with your hair and you're wearing maybe risque clothing and you know whatever it is that you can do to present this attractive image because even to this day in this world i think a lot of the time when you are a young woman you feel a lot of your self-worth by how people, generally men, but if you're same sex, I suppose it would be women, how people who could be your partners are reacting to you, mm-hmm. right? Right. And I mean, look at like popular girls in high school. Why were they popular? Because they were attractive, because they wore makeup, because they wore low cut tops, you know, or they were on the cheerleading squad or whatever it is, right? Like a lot of a woman's worth is measured in how she looks, uh, unfortunately, even to this day. Right. So I think that's what she is talking about a lot of this here, right? That like I have to wear makeup to make myself look a certain way so that men will pay attention to me and that I actually have some value in society and yeah. that I'm noticed. He even comments on it by saying makeup is also a sort of mask. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yes, duh. There you, go. you got the point. Yeah. <laughs> like, and by the way, those makeup illusions are made several times in the book. It comes up over and over again. Oh, I I could have taken a guess at that. Yeah, yeah. that sounds like this is yeah. a this is a thematic trope that's gonna be yeah. beaten over the head with me by uh, by. But Abe. it is. I mean, I this this still to this day, and and it, it is why things like grooming and sexual harassment happen, right? Because women feel like even in like a workplace setting, when you're trying to prove yourself, when you're young, like. That's still what you're measured on. It's not like, oh, you went to this great school or wow, you made this intelligent comment in a meeting or something. It's like your appearance still really factors into it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. And, and and it's and it's interesting to watch this unfold in such a way that it feels more mature for its time from a mm-hmm. from a country that I wasn't aware fully extrapolating this because mm-hmm. I'm used to an American film that has perpetuated stereotypes for decades. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, he goes back to the psych ward now. They present him with the mask, and then that's when we get the process of him applying mm-hmm. stuff to his face. 
Yep. Um, and uh, there is the a... hair, the the all the kind of different beards and mustaches. You know, mm-hmm. occasionally this this movie has some humor, and I kind of love it when it comes through. And I thought that was a really funny moment when they're trying that on. Yeah, trying i i had a, I had a couple of notes throughout the scene. Um, the first one is I love how they keep it blocked with the floral pattern in the foreground to obscure it and hide the fact that it's a Halloween mask. Um, <laughs> cause the, 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 I will, I, I told you about this earlier on in the week and I do believe this, but I, and I think that what I just described is a perfect way to justify half the things they do in this film. This makeup work is so amazing. Yeah, it really but, is. But in order to get to that point, you need the Ikebana in the foreground to mm-hmm. block the look of this mask and because it does look like a Michael Myers mask. <laughs> I Yes, good old William Shatner. Mm. Um, I think Tatsuya Nakadai also does some great facial acting around some of these Yes, scenes, right? Oh, the yes. The mask coming on and the mask coming off and he's kind of moving everything around and making it seem like it's awkward. So I think it's the three things together, all the production design, the acting and the effects themselves and, work and, really, really well. And that facial acting does have a horror connection down the line. There's a uh, a little tidbit about Halloween 4 for people. There's a scene where one of the kids gets killed by Michael Myers sticking his thumb into their forehead or something and their mm-hmm. face and kind of scrunching it up. That mm-hmm. is not, there's no prosthetics work in there. That is mm. an impressionistic uh, mm. mode, like way of the way Acting. it's the, yeah it's it's impressionistic <laughs> and combined with sound design to make you think he's crushing the face he's not doing anything he's just pushing the skin and and twisting it and contorting it a little bit mm-hmm. um so that mm-hmm. that was interesting to watch that kind of mm-hmm. acting create believability mm-hmm. where makeup mm-hmm. isn't a isn't a, a, a luxury um mm-hmm. also there's a detailed description about how it will feel suffocating to wear at the fr- yes. at first because the sweat glands have yet to adjust and to yes. never wear it beyond 12 hours. Uh, right. And that also it will look noticeable around your eyes. So wear sunglasses and look like Tom Cruise. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and it's all these awesome mad scientist details in an antiseptic yes. fashion and an aesthetic point of view. This is yes. a very, very am- much got that gremlins feel about the whole 12 hours. <laughs> yeah. But again, it's happening in this very, not sanitized, but it's antiseptic environment. Everything feels like more expensive than it should, you know? This movie does such a great job of kind of going through a lot of this process and detail without being boring. Yes, agreed. Yeah. Agreed, absolutely. Um, And then, yes, uh, as you mentioned before, the whole... Uh, facial hairs comboing with the texture of the skin <laughs> to try to make it cling is is amazing. Uh, and then there's an overt implication that the psychiatrist is now in control of his Frankenstein monster because yeah. here and in the next scene, he becomes possessive, exacting, yep. and hovering over him like a yep. helicopter parent to a newborn. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird. They have a very dysfunctional relationship. Yeah, and it's about. And I think once again, right in the book, it's two sides of the same person, and I think that's a little bit of what they're trying to get at here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree, and I think I think it does succeed. I don't think it's uh, awkward at all. No, 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 and very much we need that second person. It would not work with all this being monologue. We would have left this movie a long time ago. Agreed. Also, I don't think Mr. Okiyama could handle a surgical knife worth his fucking salt. So um, I just, <laughs> I think he'd be too angry at his face. Um, he is pretty angry. Yeah. yeah. And so we get the next scene that takes him to the a beer, jer- the beer yeah. hall. Yeah. Yay! 
Exactly. Yeah. So I'm glad to know now that this is actually a generalized concept because I assumed yeah. that this that had. I don't. I think you may have noticed it in the special features they talked about. Like this was actually a place that they filmed that. Like this was a real place. I did. Yeah, but like mm -hmm. I also didn't know yeah. if this was be tr intending. But there's to more be... than one. There's several of these. Yeah, because yeah. I thought this was intending to be specific. And again, when you hear Adolf Hitler's voice in a movie, any kind of imagery <laughs> going forward about Germany has a certain connotation that right. I'm just going to apply whatever I want to it. Well, at least his beer hall coup failed we can at least say that that is so beer very halls, yeah beer hall plus hitler equals failure so that's good yeah so uh they uh they they talk about he talks about like the whole uh, the psychiatrist gets under his skin to the point where he goes you're just trying to ignore how much the mask is aggravating you and he goes no i'm trying to ignore how you're aggravating me <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh it's it's a very uh it's a definitely a parenting relationship now um and uh he uh uh that we get new existence new life yep being seen through la jate photographs yes. for anybody who doesn't know la jate yeah. Uh, it's a film from, stills. it's a short film from yeah. France designed out of stills that tells a sci-fi story that mm -hmm. later on got turned into the film 12 Monkeys. Um, and I well, love, I didn't know that. Okay. oh yeah, La Chate is, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. 12 uh, Monkeys okay. doesn't, right. yeah. They take it and go, what if this, but with Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, right. please. And thank you. Uh, <laughs> 12 Monkeys is great. Please watch it. Um, okay. But um, it might have been overblown for people who are 90s kids and whatnot, but I, right. I promise you it is good. Um, okay. So, uh, but everything's in fragments, as he says. And I love how yeah. they use the La Jate imagery to indicate fragmentation. Um, mm -hmm. I love it yeah. when films do this. Uh, yep. Godard did this in films. Mm -hmm. And we saw it. I know it sounds corny, but it was in Goke. We yes, saw that it was. in Goke with the, with the flashbacks to the Vietnam War. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that was being used more as an external commentary. This yeah. is very... It's more memories as in, and flashback as opposed to like a montage. Exactly. Right? This, yeah. is, mm -hmm. this is point of view... La Jate mm -hmm. work here. Um, yep. And the overbearing attitude um, of the psych is gen is that he is genuinely worried because he goes, I fear if my, but if my fear is proven true, masks like this could, could destroy all mora human morality. Yep. And he spins into a Japanese Colin Clive scenario here where it's like <laughs> constant solitude would become the human condition sounds like and and I was just like well that sounds like social media to me uh but he yeah. goes on about the idea of all society collapsing and crime being like crime being a misnomer and like he goes into wacky theories where I'm just mm -hmm. like man this is a mad scientist up and down the charts mm -hmm. um but uh uh, but uh, just like Colin Clive too, Okayama just wants to be left alone. And mm -hmm. uh, the psychiatrist agrees and he'll see him the next day. Oh, and yep. by the way, wash off the adhesive before you go to bed. Right, pro That's tip. right. Pro tip about your human mask. Uh, wash off that. <laughs> wash off that scotch, ta scotch tape there. Uh, and so the next scene, uh, we go to him getting things out of a locker and heading to the apartment complex again. Yep. Now he goes back, mm -hmm. but with masks. And and the scene repeats itself virtually I love point it. per point. Yeah. yeah. And this is, I told you that Oshima movie does this too, right? There's a lot of this in new wave movies. Yeah. Like repeating. But maybe something's just one thing is different. Yeah. Like you're repeating, but one thing is different. And so in this case, the difference is the mask. And I think they do a good job of kind of showing a little bit of the difference of how the superintendent is looking at him. Yes. Mask, they, no yes. Although some things remain the same. Again, he yes. runs after the daughter with the yo-yo. 
know. Issue and, I, with, yeah. and I wrote a note, the, the shot of her avoiding him in the elevator is this film's version of Kramer entering, entering Jerry's apartment. It's like, that's their sitcom moment of like, oh, classic yo-yo girl. I told you there's a little humor in here. I yeah, there is. Yeah, it's yeah. It, it, the way yeah. she's smiling combined yes. with how the elevator door closes. I can't help but get a good giggle out of that. Yeah. Like it is, I guess, an inversion of Kramer entering Jerry's apartment for me. Um, and then in the new, uh, he gets a new apartment. Yep. And there is a he shot a of new look and he it's tries out look. facial expressions yes. and it re- yes. and smiling practices smiling. And yeah. it, it was like a twisted version of the mirror gag and duck soup for me. <laughs> like it was just, Oh yeah. yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah. And it's also, it's not yeah. strictly by the way he's performing it physically. It's yeah. what the camera's doing. It cuts yeah. to two different shots and it, and, is. And it yeah. has that vibe about it. Um, it's that doppelganger. It's all the doppelganger theming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, which is what duck soup. Yeah. Duck oh yeah, soup. very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, and and mm-hmm. Yo Yo Girl comes back into play because yep. uh, in the elevator, Okayama learns from another tenant that the Yo Yo Girl uh, needs to be taught manners. And um, yeah. I'm like, lady, she's mentally disabled. Shut the fuck yeah. up. It's a Yo Yo. The girl didn't attack you. She's playing with a fucking Yo Yo. Stop it. Um, I, I'm sorry. Like, I know that this is a movie of its time, but I was no, kind of like, it's really bad. The yeah. way mental illness is treated throughout this is not good, but probably accurate for the time. Like if it's trying to reflect the time it's in. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, uh, there's more shots, La Jate style this time of him shopping at a, yes, at a local store. Yes, yes, exactly. Consumerism. And the book really gets into the fact that he's getting a much more flash wardrobe, right? That yeah. he's going to, He's really doing it up. He's going to be, uh, he's peacocking right now with his mask. So yes. He's a different person with the mask. Yes, exactly. And the, uh, it's, uh, uh, there, in fact, there was a deleted montage of him doing, uh, uh, doing a, a dress up montage to the song New Looks by Dr. John, but that was taken out of the movie because they said it's too ahead of its time. Um, uh, and uh, he goes back to the apartment and sees the yo-yo girl trying to get the yo-yo from the tree because again that lady's an asshole and mm-hmm. he goes I will buy you a new yep. yo-yo yep out of seemingly out of the kindness of his heart mm-hmm. but then we see him putting his new clothes away and he's like, setting mm-hmm. up his new existence and then he goes outside mm-hmm. and tries to avoid being seen as he goes mm-hmm. into the other room mm-hmm. to take his exactly. mask off but the yep. yo-yo girl does that's right. Spot him. And uh, she comes in wanting the new yo-yo right away. She yep. knows it's him, but yep. it's not even portrayed in a malicious way. She just happens to know. And right. she tries to convince her he's not the same person who promised the yo-yo. And it yeah. leads to the whole very weird you don't tell and I don't tell stuff. Yeah, there's kind of a seduction angle. It's very, I. it's uncomfortable. It's definitely uncomfortable. Yeah, I got yeah. the creepers. Um, yeah. And there's a next shot. This is the shot where I'm like, okay, somebody new wave is doing his new wave thing. <laughs> the shot of a giant ear. Yeah. Somebody. Yeah. Don't know who. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't enter this movie again. Pondering yep. on it at the Sykes office. We get mm-hmm. a shot of his eye. And uh, it is darkened. Uh, is his darkened face of his office is filled with shelved items on glass shelves, followed by shots of a woman on a bed with rear projection in the back of her floating through the city for some reason. I don't know why that's there. Yep. 
I don't care. <laughs> She's on a bed or something, right? Yeah. yeah. It's that was I yeah, I didn't really get that either. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah. You you I, I, I could only imagine the song Magic Carpet Ride playing in the background. Because <laughs> at that point it's just that random. Uh, mm-hmm. But Okiyama yep. comes back and he tells the psychic, yep. uh, this, no, the psychic, the psychiatrist about the yo-yo girl. And the psychiatrist yes. creepily chalks it up to, because she's mentally challenged, she is like an yeah. animal remembering from right. instinct. And it's like, I hate you, please die. Yeah, um, like not even that. Like she's smelling you and you smell the same. Please, please like, die. No. Please die quicker than you already do in this movie. Yeah, that was Spo- Oh, awful. spoilers, by the way. Um, so he is not convinced that the mask has truly changed him. And, and mm-hmm. he asks him. And then that's when the psychiatrist asks him more about his experiences and demands that Okayama be more forthright about his experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the doc sees that he has gone to flashy clothes. And he goes, ah, mm-hmm. you're becoming yep. the persona of the mask. Yeah. And then the working. mask demanded it. Yes, exactly. And... Uh, the mask chose clothes for you. It commanded mm-hmm. you yep. to dress as you did. Now then, you still insist the mask isn't influencing you. As you gain confidence in the mask, you'll submit even more to its demands. See a friend and test it out. So he does that with the secretary yep. at his work. Um, and she does not recognize him and says, go the fuck away, bro, before I call the cops. And by the way, this goes back to our that line at the beginning. How do you know it's me? Yes. Right? So now... She doesn't recognize him. Yeah, yeah. and she, he even tries to whole, pull the whole thing of like, you know that guy who got his face burned out? I'm his brother. <laughs> like, and it's just <laughs> yeah. like, nah, just stop yeah. it. And then he's, she's just like, uh, you're weird. Go away. Yeah, go away. <laughs> uh, goes back to the house, and uh, yeah. the missus is washing strands of cloth. What is this? Uh, I don't know what she's doing here. The bandages. The Those bandages. bandages. Oh, that's, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Why didn't yeah. I put that together? God, yeah. I'm an idiot. God, she's a really good wife. Uh, but, she's an amazing wife. She's yeah. so understanding. She's so nice to him. And he's just all in Sally. He's angry. a piece of shit. Uh, yeah. And we go back yeah. to the scarred woman, though. And she's watching target practice. By yeah. I was confused by this because I know that Japan got demilitarized after the mm-hmm. war. Are these yeah. the police or air raid wardens? What, the, what are they? Yeah, they're probably local police, is okay. my guess. Gotcha. And, and by the way, like I said, not even all the local police carry guns. It's it's uncommon that people are carrying guns. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but but yeah. Uh, yeah, she's watching it and she's getting more war paranoia attached to it. They her. do have a self-defense force. It could be that too. I, I have to go look again and like look at their uniforms. I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. But yeah, it could be their self-defense force. Yeah. Well. So she's kind of getting the imagery of like, oh no, there's another war coming. More but, war coming. Yeah. yeah. So in that case, probably self-defense force is more likely right because it'll be more militaristic exactly yeah. yeah but we go back to the beer hall and okayama mm-hmm. is having more revelry in this mask he is starting to feel getting more drunk he's getting, getting com- drunk i love the line the mask is I, making yeah drunk. yeah it's like have you gotten used to the mask or has the mask gotten to you but my favorite yeah. one is is it my true self getting drunk or the mask or I being drunk is a mask. Mm. Ah. And that's when my alcoholic brain went like, see? Dun, you, were dun, just, dun. you were just masked the whole time. Yeah, sure. That's the, exactly what happened. Um <laughs> uh, uh but he uh um I agree. And she uh um he reveals his plan. He goes like, I fooled you. And I wanted the psych to be like, no, you didn't. I knew you were going to do this. But he is going to seduce his wife in the mask. And he lays out a strategic plan of attack that Mm -hmm. could only be devised by the Joker. (laughs) 
<laughs> and by the way, something that I think wasn't obvious in the film, but it is specifically stated in the book, which mm -hmm. is remember all those voyeurism trips he's taking back home every once in a while when he's going home, he's sneaking in and taking things. And that's how he got the button, because I was trying to figure out when he's walking, like, where did he get that jewel that he's giving to her? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And he had gotten it from the house before. Maybe they had even filmed that at some point and just cut it out. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And uh, I uh, I like the I like how the doc is kind of like starting to see the tinges of regret in what he's done. Yeah. Uh he uh Yeah, he, he messed up. Yeah, he messed <laughs> up. Sure. He he hearing this plan and whatnot, he goes like, uh, what if the mask lives on by taking your body? A mm -hmm. world uh, and that but that's when he goes back again though, into his invisible man machinations of mm -hmm. a world without yeah. family, friends, or yes. enemies. Crime yeah. would disappear. And I'm like, how does that work now, buddy? Sounds like you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. And also, so, but like one that does in, in, intrigue the mind is suspicion and betrayal would be no longer possible. And uh, it, it does realm into this quandary in your mind about like, well, how would this work? Yeah. <laughs> and like if that happened, uh, yeah. it's very chaotic uh, yeah. uh, thinking, um, and uh, but he leaves him to basically get drunk with himself and go forward with his plans. Yeah. Which yeah. he first of all he does go by the new yo yo, uh, yep. uh, and that's when he instigates his plan on the street. He stakes out yep. his wife, yep. and proceeds with the plan. Runs yep. into her, comes up with an excuse to be like, "Well, let's go get some food," and they go yep. to this. Uh, they go. They go to a a, a place near the ocean. Uh, there. Uh, no, the ocean is going to be the brother and sister. So he takes her. He's like, "Can we go get some tea?" Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Takes her to like a tea shop. In the book, it's clear that after tea, they actually go to dinner as well. Uh, okay. Um, so this and is... then you can see that he's getting more and more upset when she's just agreeing to everything, right? Like she's agreeing too easily, and he's like, "What?" So you that, know, my so, wife's like, so yeah, the, yeah. The, those shots amid the rocks are of the a of we the get B to the, story. so so. The way I have it in my notes, and maybe I just got the order wrong. The way I have it in my notes is he gets, they go to tea, they're playing footsie, then we cut back to the rocks, mm. and that's the the man, the 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 woman and the brother at mm. the at the hot spring resort. Gotcha. But okay, I uh, think that's how. It regardless, though, the, I love the cinema verite shots happening throughout yeah. the city as they're walking to the place they're going to yes. eat. Uh, I like that. I like that documentary feel popping on into the street. Film. Very, very new wave, right? Just get, kind of getting out there in the in the open on the street. It yep. gives it gives me an idiot a better perspective of Japanese society uh -huh. at this time, yeah. and not and just by in the way, samurai notice, clothing. right? Yeah. By the sixties, now these cities are booming, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, They're crowded with people, all kinds of commerce, really nice restaurants. Like we're a long way from where we started, right back in the Invisible Man days. If you'll recall, the cities look pretty shabby. Exactly. Point, yeah. Um, yeah. We also go back to the scarred woman and her brother and That's asking right. if she is beautiful on one side of her face. He says, yes, too beautiful. Mm. Uh, we go back yeah. to the psychiatrist's office. And after a kiss from assistant, she says, still no news. And they are <laughs> waiting. Uh, who will he, he, he? They're waiting for him and says, who is being killed by whom? One out of three. You figure it out. <laughs> and we go back to the apartment. He gives yep. the yo-yo girl the yo-yo yep. and takes his wife up to the apartment. And in the apartment, yep. he starts baiting her with talk about how they're, yep. we're about to have an affair. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. That was my yeah. favorite, one of my favorite lines in the oh, movie. He's like, don't you understand? We're about to have an affair. You're married. Don't you care? <laughs> like, no. And she's just like refusing to bite this bait. 
but then exactly. they begin to make out and make love and yeah. uh yeah. and uh uh she is calm as yep. all get out, calm as the waters while he is mm -hmm. an erratic wreck. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this intercuts to the beds of the scarred girl and her brother. She asks yeah. him to kiss her because yeah. there will be a war soon. And he begins to kiss her all over. And it is yeah. uncomfortable for any viewer, yeah. period. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I just, like I said, I wanted to give some background on what it was like to be a survivor of these, just to indicate the level of isolation they're experiencing. Right. And mm -hmm. really they are the only ones for each other. They're not able to get married. Their parents are probably dead. You know, they're just together all the time and that's all they have. And so, yes, while it is societally upsetting, you can kind of understand where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I can, I, I can understand that. Yeah. I can, yeah. I can see, I can see it from that perspective. And it goes back to the apartment where Okayama finally reveals it was him. She becomes disgusted with him and says, motherfucker, I already knew it was you. Exactly. She just thought it was a game. Um, there are some other, you know, there are other films that I was reminded of, of that. There's a short film that I, I wish I could remember. I think it might even be called something like Tokyo. It's made by a Western filmmaker, but it's about like a couple who uh, suffered like the loss of a child. And because of that, they kind of, their marriage is suffering and then mm -hmm. they, you see them they're both in tokyo you don't know they're a couple at the beginning it just seems like a a meet cute in a rom-com right? right they're both yeah. foreigners in tokyo they meet each other i think they have the same tour the tour book or something and that leads to them getting together and then it's very and, and same kind of thing just like this they get together they're going out they're having fun they sleep together and then it's like the next morning is when you realize that like actually they were married they were taking a break from their relationship because of this loss they experienced and mm -hmm. um, this right. was kind of i guess a ruse they were using to try to rekindle things yeah so, yeah. yeah and she she uh she really lays out back into the makeup mm -hmm. analogy and mm -hmm. she has just had enough like um uh she she uh she was willing to go along with this game, but pretending the mask is your real face, that I'll never accept. And then she says, right, in love, we try to unmask one another. Mm -hmm. It's you who rejected yourself. Like, I've always loved you. You're the one who had all these hangups, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and she she says something that I thought was explicitly a horror line, which is I am barely holding back screaming. Yeah. Like it's almost as like I am holding back on what you expect of this scene, of this yeah. moment from these kind of movies. And there mm -hmm. is a terrifying shot of him starting to take off the mask earlier in that scene. But mm -hmm. then afterward, when she leaves in disgust, there's this terrifying shot that holds on Okayama molding the mask back around his face. Yeah, it is unsettling. It's that again, it's that finger work that you're talking about where it's you're molding your own skin to give the impression mm -hmm. of it. Um, mm -hmm. And we go back to the scarred woman at this point where she goes to walk out into the ocean and die. Yeah, because she thinks another war is coming. Oh, before that, we actually once again go back to that opening monologue from the psychiatrist about oh yes, yes, inferiority complexes. Yes, then we get to the scarred girl walking in the ocean brother crying with guilt and then all of a sudden you have a like rapture moment where he turns into like a side of beef <laughs> yeah he literally is a cow hung in a butcher's hook um and Which, i yeah. i i mean i just have to think like that flash with the meat i mean very much kind of that nuclear bomb situation 
situation, right? Mm-hmm. Like that oh, yeah. is what happened. Oh yeah, he's playing with he's playing with Im- uh, illusionary imagery. It's not even a secret. And people literally did have their skin fall off as a result of the nuclear bomb explosion. So. Ex- yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so Okayama goes back out into the street, and I love this erratic editing as he's walking down the alley where it keeps yeah. like pushing into. Me- medium wide to medium close up like it's it's moving all over the place uh mm-hmm. and that's when he declares that he has nobody and yeah. assaults a woman on the street yep and he gets taken by the police yeah thankfully and as he's mm-hmm. being booked booked in process he keeps saying that he has no one mm-hmm. and he is in the most transfixed oh my god what the fuck fa- f- haze that i've ever mm-hmm. seen uh yeah. and there's this handheld shot of it then zooming into a still of his eyes which i love mm-hmm. uh, i love that because i feel like we don't get to do that in film anymore i think that this is like an experimental snap zoom into somebody's eyes that you can mm-hmm. you don't have to resort to a photo a photograph to achieve this effect i kind of mm-hmm. wish people would bring this back because it's so yeah. unsettling um mm-hmm. The psych finds out and bails him out of jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's when the glass harmonica starts to ramp up and permeate mm-hmm. and build up to the climax. As yeah. they're walking out into the crowd, the psychiatrist yeah. starts to see that the entire crowd has become, as he masks. envisioned, all wearing yeah. masks of no distinction, yeah. no expression, diametrically yeah. opposed to A Page of Madness, where everybody's right. no mask is a very yeah. distinct feature and a different yes. expression. There is and, no expression And I think here. it's because here, the point we're trying to make is that kind of Jungian persona, right? That everybody has to wear this. You start out by wearing these masks mm-hmm. to fit into society. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And that's, and it's, uh, he goes, you don't understand. You're not the only one who's lonely. It's always, it's always lonely being free. Being Some free. masks don't come off, do they? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And as he follows the psych through the crowd, they become mm-hmm. alone mm-hmm. and the lights go out as he tells yeah. Okayama. And that, by the way, that's another thing that happens in the bar too, when he's revealing his plan, the yes. lights go out. Yes. Very theatrical. Yes. Very theatrical. Yes. yes. Or- Orson Welles would have loved this. Uh, yep. There's a there's a definite like theatricality and deception or powerful agents, mm-hmm. Mr. Wayne, going on in this film. Mm-hmm. And lights are a big part of that. The lights go out as he tells Okayama to do as he wishes. And he goes to shake his hand. And then Okayama slowly stabs the psychiatrist in the back. And he falls to the ground dead. It's very yep. chilling. It's not yep. flashy. No. Uh, there's an over, uh, over the. Uh, there's an uh, a god's eye view shot. Yeah. Of him running back into the ground, and he goes to. He continues to check and feel his new face and his new life, and it freezes on this terrified and concerned look. Mm-hmm. And it ends. Uh, yep. Very disturbing ending. Yeah. Like, imagine the code era where we'd have to have him getting arrested or something, right? Like, we don't want... That's not the point. I mean, the book, like I said, begins, mm-hmm. like, at him envisioning a crime spree. Yeah, exactly. And it's too nuanced for a code to allow this. Yeah. Um, this film... Uh, <laughs> this film had... Uh, not as great a reception as a Best Direction nominee would have. Yeah. It's roadshowed in Japan starting on July 15th, 1966, uh, as it's distributed by Toho. It receives a general release in Japan on September 23rd, 1967. It then gets into the United States on June 9th, 1967, reissued in the U.S. in May by Rising Sun and Toho in 1975. It's not as well-received outside of Japan as Woman of the Dunes is. Um 
And it was successful in Japan, but it was a critical and financial failure internationally. Um, Vincent Camby from New York Times wrote, As fiction, it's too fanciful to be seriously compelling and too glib to be especially thought-provoking. Um, mm, uh, I disagree. I disagree, <laughs> too. Um, I, I think in terms of how this film falls into the horror category, I think it falls into what people perceive as artistic horror or uh high horror or like whatever you want to call it high or, horror. let's just not even let's take the value judgment out it's it's like a psychological horror yeah psychological I, terror and whatnot yeah. and i think that yeah. this is more of a terror film than a horror film as val luton yeah. would probably describe it sure uh sure but many of these things are internalized fears or dread but yes we still get those tropes right the mm -hmm. monsters the bad scientists creating the monsters yeah the disembodied body parts you know there's a little bit there you're re yeah. you're repurposing stereotypes for the purposes of a right. internalized struggle and yeah. i feel like we've talked about the many ways that this film has found its influence whether through collective unconscious or just a generalized notion i i feel like this is a film that potentially Almodovar study, studies before making The Skin I Live In? Good question. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There's such a connection between those because it's all about appearance and identity. And I think we mentioned Cronenberg as well. A lot of the same meditations that Cronenberg has on that as well. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. But I, I I think thankfully it's like it's some it's one of those films where I'm glad Eclipse has a hold of it, that it's available on Criterion Channel. And it gives us a different perspective of horror and gives us an entryway that is not explicit the way other films have uh, been discussed on this program. Um, uh, the, like uh, I think a page of madness is the closest resemblance uh, to this yes. film, uh, but yes. we have had a good chunk of time where we're dealing in high concept fantasy. Yes. Very elements. campy. Yeah. Yeah. Was interesting I think this one back. relates back to invisible man and page of madness in several ways, but very different style. I mean, this is new wave. Now we see the new waveness of it. Agreed. Right? Yeah. Rashmi, do you have any final thoughts on this film and how it speaks to you as a, as a film goer and as a horror fan? I, I really enjoy this film. I, I, like I said, I like psychological horror. I like, I, I, I love it when my horror kind of comes with a side of philosophy. Right. Mm -hmm. And I actually think a lot of horror does this. That's why I don't like the high horror or whatever comment, because I think a lot of horror choose, you know, forces you to confront things like what is identity mm -hmm. and what is being and, and, you know, what makes us who we are and, how do I interact differently with different people? And when I do so, can and when I in interact differently with the same person, can they tell? And mm -hmm. I just think there are some really interesting questions there. I love the production design. I love the sound design. Uh, the acting is, I think, wonderful. Very naturalistic. Works really well. Never over the top, although it kind of is a little tongue in cheek in, in at times. Right. Yeah. Little little doses of humor here and there. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the discussion of mental illness, not great. They're definitely of its time. And I think I agree with you that the way the B story is woven in is not as effective as it could be, but still a fantastic film. Highly recommended. Yeah, I, I agree. I highly recommend it. Um, I, I, my, my feelings about the B story aside, I think that this is a very wonderful example of somebody engaging in the thriller aesthetic from an area that uh bore a lot of resemblance to Hitchcock for me and that's something that I was able to tap into nicely but I think it also exemplifies ideas of existential crisis being explored mm -hmm. in a horror fashion and I feel like those tend to be 
the most terrifying films in in existence because they manage to tap into our internal dread. And I and feel... they're so relatable, right? Mm-hmm. Every yeah. one of us has faced a conscious of crisis or, you know, it, crisis of conscious or who am I or who do I want to be? Or, you know, all of these are things we struggle with on a day-to-day basis. You know, like I'm unlikely to meet Michael Myers on a street. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe it'll happen, but let's hope not. You know, those kinds of extreme things are unlikely to happen. But like this happens to us every day. Yeah. It's the difference between manifesting it in the form of an outward monster and instead internalizing a lot. For all of the makeup and... Science, mad scientist backdrop to this. It, this is still an internal story. It just happens to have set decoration that mm-hmm. implicates other elements that make it digestible to you, the audience member. I really think that this is a fun film for people to check out if they're looking for something more complicated than yes. what you are perceiving Japanese horror to be, which as we go along in the series, we're going to be going to things that are much more familiar to a modern audience. Yes, uh, aesthetically. So this is... The last of our kind of, I grouped this in our sci-fi films just because of that mm-hmm. mad scientist kind of, you know, molding uh, a storyline here. So I, that's why I kind of grouped it here. Agreed, um, yeah. So so we're wrapping up sci-fi and moving on to a new set of films around ghosts, Yay! spirits, uh, Yay! I see dead people. We're going to see a lot of dead people oh, uh, in this sweet. next series. <laughs> we're all Haley Joel Osment. We're all, exactly. we're all six sensing. <laughs> exactly. And ghosts are really the motivation for a lot of this series in mm-hmm. that, you know, obviously Ringu is when J-Horror really came back in full force. And we know that kind of the long haired girl in the white dress. We know that image really well. Uh, We're going to see a lot of them, but we're going to see some different things, too. So we're going to explore this kind of topic of spirits and ghosts from a variety of perspectives. Yeah. And what are we going to kick this off with, Rashmi? What are we going to kick this off Yes. So we're going to kick it off with Kwaidan, which is a very famous uh, classic Japanese film. Um, It's by the director Kobayashi, who's another one of my favorites. I know I say that about everybody, (laughs) but Kobayashi is a real, real gem. Um, probably doesn't get as much name recognition as someone like Kurosawa or Ozu, but I think just as good, if not better. Kwaidan is going to be in color and it has a very interesting use of color. Uh, mm. Very, for me, it's maybe like equivalent of red shoes in, uh, in uh, Japan, right? In its Ooh. use of color and its sets. Um, and um, it is based on a series of folk tales. So it's actually an anthology movie because it's got four different stories, which also makes it a little longer. So if you're planning to watch it, just plan ahead. It's a three-hour movie in four parts, and you can take breaks between the four parts because Mm. they're not the same characters or different stories. And it's based on these short story uh, folk tales that were actually combined, compiled by a non-Japanese person. So we're going to have a lot of fun talking about him as well, a gentleman named Lafka. Claudio Hearn, very interesting life. Um, and so he wrote this book that co- that collected all of these Japanese folktales together. And then Kobayashi used those folktales as his basis for this film. Wonderful. So we're going to kick off with Quiet On next time. But Rashmi, thank you as always for bringing this subject to the YBR Presents feed. It's an, always been a pleasure talking about these films and it's going to continue being a pleasure. Um, and that's going to wrap it up for this episode of YBR Presents Kawaii. Uh, dig back to our past discussions. Learn a little bit more about A Page of Madness. If you're wondering, what the hell is that? Well, we did an episode on it. You could check it out. Also, be sure to check out the discussions surrounding Hitchcock and Jacques Tati uh, if you're wanting a little primer for why this series exists. Uh, and stick around at the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review for more discussions of cinema's past. But until all of this and until we tackle quite on, good night, folks. Good night, folks.